Hey, hello, hi, welcome to and are back to the Jet Real Podcast. I am your host, Jill Treese, and on this podcast, I like to talk about horse things and people things. So this week, I'm actually going to be continuing from last week's episode. Um, if you haven't listened to it, it's probably a good idea to go ahead and stop this one, go listen to that one, and then come back to this one because they are part one and part two following each other and should probably be listening to that order because I'm going to reference stuff from the last one and it may not be totally clear in this one uh, if you haven't heard that. But this episode is going to be continuing this little mini series on deep diving into debunking dominance theory. And this episode is the offshoot from last week's because I ran out of time to answer all of the questions that you guys asked me about dominance theory. And there are a lot of really good questions and a lot of really good topics that I'm really excited to get into. Every time I read over my list, I was like, God, I want to do it now. I have so many thoughts. (laughs) Um, So we are just going to jump into that. Uh, You should listen because these are a lot of things that people commonly wonder. And um, I think think it's important to Um, address them and change the way we think about horses especially if it's not supported by science so without further ado cue the music So yes, we are still rocking and rolling on the old music because I think it's suiting for this series because it's kind of a, an angsty, controversial, ooh, science says people are often wrong <laughs> uh, kind of series. So uh, we're going to rock and roll with that. But you guys know the drill before we get into it. We got to do the ads. So let's roll them real fast. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the Icon of Vacations, Icon of the Seas, arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry Bahamas. And the last ad that we have to do that I have to freestyle every single time is the fact that I have a Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash jetrealpodcast or just search it when you get to the site. And you can support me and the horses on Patreon if you would like any amount you can do. 
helps uh but don't feel obligated it's no worries either way it just helps me out um gets me a little bit closer to my dream of just being able to move out of arkansas and have the ponies and uh be able to exist (laughs) and also it helps me uh dedicate more time to the podcast uh, among other reasons and you also get really cool benefits like being able to do online training ask your training questions and learn more about things you want to know from me So check out the Patreon for the full list of benefits that you can get if you join. Other than that, let's rock and roll. So yeah, I got a really positive response from the last episode. I'm really excited about that because I was so worried about it. It actually did really well. Like a lot of people actually did listen to it. And I got several messages from different people saying that they were like, I thought you were an idiot. I really thought that you were not going to say anything that made sense. And you were just going to come at me with a whole bunch of tree hum- hugging mumbo jumbo. And you did not. You actually changed my mind, which is awesome. Because I love that even though people <laughs> went into it thinking that um, they were just going to like hate listen or disagree with me the whole time, um, that not only did they actually listen to the whole thing, but um, they actually were open enough to changing their opinions and I think that's really cool and I think that is something that the horse world definitely needs more of because we do have a tendency don't lie you know it happens we have a tendency to get locked into my way or the highway I'm right you're wrong um, because confronting being wrong makes us feel insecure and less than and it's not a good feeling and you want to be right all the time right yes okay no, you don't have to be. You can still be a good person, a smart person, intelligent, and be wrong. I'm slowly getting there, learning that that is okay. Um, so anyway, um, if you don't know, I come from a background of very traditional riding and training and did all of these things. I did the natural horsemanship and the join-up and eventing and many, many other things um, that had a basis in dominance theory. And I believed it up until like, uh, one and a half to two years ago uh, was when I really started being like, ah, maybe not so much. And um, I even remember actually reading the study done on why join up was you know, bullshit <laughs> um, and being like, yeah, whatever. And just like not believe, like there was an, a whole ass study done saying like join up, it doesn't make sense. And being like, yeah, yeah, it does. Like that's just totally disregarded the fact and was like, no, it does. (laughs) And um, no, we actually do value science in this household. Um, Speaking of household, if it's a little more echoey than usual, I'm house sitting for my boss and taking care of all of her animals and her black cat is sitting here staring at me. So um, I don't know if the audio is going to sound any different, but I'm still using my mic. So it might be a little more echoey than usual. Um, And hopefully... Um, there will not be too much barking in the background because this neighborhood is full of dogs. <laughs> um, anyway, so I kind of want to rock and roll on these questions. There are 24 of them, and one of which includes me needing to read an entire study. Um, and, well, it's not an entire study. It is it is an excerpt from a website summary of an article, like a scholarly article done by the University of Sydney. Um, so question number one, let's get into this. The one experiment where the horse joined up with a toy car. <laughs> that is a question. Um, and question number two actually goes uh, hand in hand with this. It asks, why does a horse follow you after join up? So I'm going to answer both of these questions by first uh, explaining what join up is if you've never heard of it. And uh, then reading this um, this excerpt, quote, whatever. Um, so first, if you don't know, join up is something that I found out about through watching... <clears throat> sorry choked 
you're watching the show Heartland. It's on Netflix. It's a Canadian horse TV show, whatever. And it's all about Bond. And they're actually a lot kinder than most. Uh, like the Saddle Club. Oh my God. <laughs> no hate to those girls. They were just doing their job. But the, pulling on the horse's mouths, making them rear and do all sorts of crazy stuff. Heartland tends to be on the more ethical side. Um, but it is still a TV program and there is some Hollywood magic. Um, and they talked about join up and, um, it's interesting cause they also have an episode on positive reinforcement and it is like not fantastic, but I was like, you know, props for including it in the one, one episode. <laughs> um, but so that's where I found out about join up. And then I started looking it up cause I was like, is it a real thing? And it is, uh, Monty Roberts is a really popular natural horsemanship trainer. Um, he's kind of up there like with Buck Branneman and he is the one that developed the join up method TM <laughs> like copyright. Um, so essentially what this method includes is you are in a round pin. So a big circular arena. Um, usually they're about like 20 meters, like a good 20 to 30 meter circle. Some are bigger 50 meter circles. Um, and you stand in the center of it and you turn the horse loose. Um, there's no rope, but it is like lunging without a rope. So the horse is free in the arena and um you stand in the center and usually some people use a lunge whip some people use a driving whip some people use a like a carrot stick or a long stick with a plastic bag on the end of it or a flag um anything that will scare the horse (laughs) essentially um because if you have spent a day around horses in your life you know that if you flap or flap a plastic bag or snap a whip at a horse, they're going to go running. So the intent is to make the horse move, to scare it. Um, Because the only reason the horse would move is because you're scaring it. Let's be frank. (laughs) There is no nice way around it. I mean, we could use euphemisms and say, make the horse, you know, encourage them to go forward. But the reason that they're moving forward is because they're trying to get away from the thing that is making the loud, scary sound. So the horse um, starts to run in a circle, and by Monty Roberts's um, explanation, like I'm telling you guys, back in the day, like there are videos on my YouTube channel of me doing this and talking about why it works and why it's so great, and I don't make any sense (laughs) to myself now, Um, but it is um, essentially you, by Monty Roberts's directions, you wait for the horse to put an ear on you, to lick and chew, to lower his head, or to slow down or signal that he's ready to, um, turn into you, you know, turn his front end facing you, hind end away from you, and come straight towards you. Um, so those are categorized by Roberts as submission signals. They're, um, when the horse is telling you, okay, I give up, you're the dominant one. And in this paradigm, you have now earned the horse's respect and it will come to you and follow you around the arena and now you have joined up. So now I'm going to tell you why that is bullshit and not supported by science at all and anthropomorphic and it's it's so wrong. It is so wrong. Okay, (laughs) I'm so heated about it. Um, And I do want to say before I get too far into this that if you still believe these things, even after we go through this podcast and I, I tell you all the reasons, you know, why I disagree, if you still believe, I do not think that you are an inferior person, inferior horse trainer, or that you enjoy abusing your animals or anything of that nature. I am simply trying my best to 
provide information that is supported by science and research and also give you my opinion from my experiences and the reading that I have done and, you know, the work with the horses that I've done to um, give you an alternative and um, ex- keep saying, um, keep ex- or <laughs> explain that there is another way other than trying to be dominant over your horse when it's not supported by science. Take a shot every time I say supported by science. Um, anyway, sorry, don't do that, especially if you're underage, no drinking, kids. Um, anyway, so I, I'm not hating on anyone. I don't think anybody is stupid or inferior. Most of this comes from a lack of knowledge, uh, which is ignorance, but that is kind of a buzzword. It makes people think you think that they're like actually stupid, but no, you just don't have the knowledge. I was ignorant before I did the research on join up and dominance theory and why those things aren't true. They're not, they're just fabricated concepts to explain and justify things that otherwise are not justifiable. Like, like imagine if you were chasing a dog around with a scary object or a hot poker. And then when the dog, you know, submitted and followed you around, you were like, yes, now we're bonded. You would be like, that doesn't make any sense at all. But for some reason, when it's a horse, it's okay, question mark. Um, so anyway, it's not your fault if you didn't know before. Um, and you know, if you want to change and if you still don't want to change, you are entitled to that, but I encourage you to hear me out now that my disclaimer is out of the way, I'm going to proceed. So this article was done by phys.org. It's P-H-Y-S, phys, like half of physics. Um, the article is titled Researchers Urge Rethink of Monty Roberts' Horse Training Method. It's done by the University of Sydney. Um, this is where um, the International Society for Equitation Science is out of. There are the, like, I would argue the leading researchers in um, equine studies, and they do really good, thorough, big studies. Um, so their, <laughs> their information is very valid. And um, so, yeah, I will link everything that I discuss here that has a link below. And if you want more information on dominance theory, I really encourage you to listen to my previous episode and check the description of that episode for more links uh, and where I got my information. Um, okay, I'm going to read this article. So it says... Aspects of horse training method made famous by Monty Roberts, author of The Man Who Listens to Horses, have been called into question by research at the University of Sydney. Uh, Quote, this training technique was popularized worldwide by Roberts as a join-up method and was used by him to train Queen Elizabeth's horses at her personal request, said Kath Henshaw, a Master of Animal Science candidate uh, in the Facility of Veterinary Science at the Sydney University. Henshaw led the research and is presenting her findings at the International Society for Equitation Science Conference in Edinburgh on 17th of July, which is semi-relevant, but this was presented at a very important, very big um, conference, so I felt it was important to include. And I also want to pause here and say that if you're going, well, if Queen Elizabeth said that he uh, was good, um, I encourage you to take a look at the, say, Kardashians' equine practices where a small child, I have no idea, I don't keep up with the Kardashians, but it does come across my Twitter timeline every time there's a horse involved. Um, And like, I don't know how old their daughter is. Um, Is it North? I think her name is North. Yeah, because Kanye West. Okay, I got it. Sorry, I had to work that one out. Um, 
there is a picture um, of her riding their Frisian. Um, first of all, Kim couldn't spell Frisian. I get it. It's a hard word, but I think if you own several of them, it might be time to learn the word. And also, so it's a young girl, like uh, under 10, I'm assuming. And the horse is in a double bridle. <laughs> like a 10-year-old doesn't know how to use a double bridle. I don't know how to use a double bridle. So a 10-year-old definitely doesn't know how to use a double bridle. And um, a saddle that didn't fit and an improper equestrian attire. And so my point in saying that is not to hate on the Kardashians, but it is to say that money and wealth and social status does not equal knowledge, <laughs> especially where horses are concerned. I don't know if you've ever watched a TV show uh, where they have everything on backwards and not fitting and uh, their jumping position involves getting left behind and ripping the horse's face out. Yeah, it doesn't, it does not mean <laughs> anything. Um, but the point is this, um, this information got perpetuated so far that the queen was like, yeah, I want to do that with my horses. I want this very popular man who wrote this book that knows so much to train my horses. And that is where the science comes into play. So continuing um, to quote them here. Oops, sorry, move the soul. Um, two main features of this method, also known as round pin horse training, are that it depends on one, the human trainer being able to communicate with the horse using, quote, horse body language, and two, that it is a humane form of training. Our study cast doubt on both of these claims. Uh, we believe that our research highlights the unpleasant underpinnings of round pin horse training, and for that reason, we caution against its widespread use because it uses fear to gain control of horses. As currently practiced, this technique relies on the trainer using movement and noise to drive the horse around the perimeter of the pin. The trainer gradually reduces their aggressive movements, after which the horse will eventually slow and approach them. The researchers used remote cars to remote control cars to mimic the technique to eliminate the assumed essential role of humans speaking the language of the horse. Okay, so I'm going to pause here and say that's super important. So when I first read the study, I was like, yeah, yeah, so the horse joined up with the car or whatever. It's a fluke. Um, no, it's not. <laughs> um, the whole point of the join-up method relies on bond and human being able to speak horse and um, that the horse is respecting you and valuing you as their leader. And all of that just goes right down the drain when they also do it with a remote control car. So let's, let's think about that for a second. Um, so this is the part where um, they explain it. So why does the horse join up with the remote control car? Why do they join up with the human? if it's not for respect or dominance or uh, power or accepting the leader. So they go on to say we rewarded, and that is in parentheses or uh, air quotes, by the way, um, because it's not technically a reward, it's reinforcement. Um, so in the last episode, I talked about um, how the relief of or the release of pressure is not a reward um, in that if you are <laughs> working at your job and your boss says do this assignment or you're fired um, and then when you do it you don't get fired that is not only a threat but it is also uh, negative reinforcement because you know you're relieved that's not a reward you don't feel rewarded by getting to keep your job um, Positive reinforcement would be your boss coming up to you and saying, hey, 
um, if you do this assignment, I will give you a raise. And then you get the raise. That's actually a reward. You want that. So um, that's where negative reinforcement um, walks a fine line um, between being a threat and information. So, um, you know, if you've been listening to my podcast for a while, I'm sorry, I'm tangenting. Um, but if you've been listening to my podcast for a while, you know that at the beginning, I was not a huge fan of negative reinforcement at all. I was like, it does not have any place in training. Um, I've changed. I definitely think that it does. I think that it is impossible to live in our world without it, at least in some capacity. But, um, in the way that it's often used, especially when it's justified by dominance theory, it starts causing problems um, because you're threatening the horse. And that's the article will explain that in a bit. Um, so, you know, if the horse doesn't do what you want, it knows that it's going to, you know, bad things are going to happen. So it's a threat. Even if you're not doing anything, the horse is still responding to you because it's afraid of that potential escalation. I hope that makes sense. Let's try and elucidate that. Okay. Reading what they said, we quote, rewarded the horses for stopping and turned and turning towards the car with a period of safety when the car didn't chase them as long as they kept facing it. We trained some horses to walk up and touch the car, said Henshaw. Given that we could train horses to produce similar, though not identical responses to those seen in round pin training, but in reaction to non-human stimuli undermines the claim that the human's ability to mimic horse behavior is an essential component of the technique. So jumping in again here to say, if you haven't watched any of Monty Roberts's videos or tutorials or anything, you, you might not be super familiar. Um, but he talks about how you can throw your hand up. Like if you look at your hand right now and you like curl your fingers in to make it like a bear claw and you're like, <laughs> that's the sound effect that I think goes with that hand. Um, he's like, this mimics the panther claw and you're driving the horse because you, it thinks your hand is a panther claw. First of all, no, it doesn't. Second of all, what? do what? No, that doesn't make any sense. You're just being scary. <laughs> and uh, usually with that panther claw comes forward motion, aggressive body language. And then the horse is like, well, I'm getting out of here. Of course, it's going to work. Like, ay, it's like juking somebody. Like if you walk up to somebody in the supermarket and you like fake them out, like you act like you're going to come towards them, they're going to move away from you. They're going to be like, I don't know what this guy's about. I'm gonna get out of here. Horses view it the same way. Okay. So continuing on, the researchers believe that the training outcomes were achieved as a result of pressure release, negative reinforcement, and not the ability of the trainer or a remote control car to mimic horse behavior. So negative reinforcement is what caused all of this, not humans or remote control cars being able to communicate like horses do. Okay, that's very important. Um, Continuing, put simply, pressure release works because the horse finds the pressure applied unpleasant and therefore the removal of the pressure is rewarding, said Henshaw. I prefer saying reinforcing. It's not a reward. Um, but for layman terms, reward. <laughs> um, the response the horse makes immediately before the pressure is removed is what the horse thinks that pr made the pressure go away. When put in the same situation in the future, it is likely to perform that same behavior to obtain obtain the outcome that it values, which is safety. So again, the horse is learning which behaviors make you stop being aggressive, scary, or annoying. So if the horse lowers its head and you lower the whip, then the horse is like, okay, figuring something out here. And if their head comes back up and you raise the whip, they put their head back down and they submit. 
and they're guessing the whole time they're going around the arena as to what will make you stop. And I want to throw it out there that that is not the way that I want my animal to view me. I do not want the entire time I'm working with them for them to be trying to figure out how to make me stop doing what I'm doing. Stop the training, leave them alone, and avoid me. That's not what I want. And that's what this is. And um, the literal reason that the horse is doing what you want it to do is because you're stopping doing things that it doesn't like. Okay? Like, that's a big deal. (laughs) So... Okay, I'm going to keep reading. We're almost done. Sorry, I keep stopping. I just have important thoughts. Maybe they're not important. (laughs) I think they are. Okay, so. Although neither Monty Roberts's method nor ours uses pressure applied directly to the horse's body, both apply a form of emotional pressure by scaring and then chasing the horse. Proponents of join-up and similar methods claim that not only uh, are they humane because no equipment is used on the horse's body, but also that the horse can choose whether or not to approach the trainer. Um, Henshaw says, uh, that's wrong. (laughs) Our results indicate that because these methods rely on fear and safety, the horse is forced to choose between being repeatedly frightened or remaining with the trainer. We question whether it is humane to rely on fear and its termination to train horses. Although it is appealing to think that horses in the round pen choose to follow their trainers because they are responding to us as though we are a horse, we believe that the use of fear has no place in genuinely humane and ethical horse training. So, um, if that doesn't totally make sense, I will try and reword here. So, people that propagate the join-up method, and I myself used to be a part of this group, say it's humane, the horse doesn't have a halter on, maybe it has a halter on, it's not connected to anything. The horse is free to roam about the round pen, but for some reason they choose to walk up to you. Why do they do that? Surely you can't be scaring them that badly if they choose to walk up to you. Unless the only way they get you to stop being terrifying is by approaching you and staying close to you. So you reinforce their behavior of, and some horses get there quicker. Some horses um, have, you know, maybe either been round pinned before or been lunged before. um, And lunging is, I want to say, not the same thing as join up. Um, it is it can be used differently join up is usually not done very differently um because it depends on you being aggressive or um unpleasant enough for the horse to want to make you stop if you're not being unpleasant it's not going to be reinforcing when you stop so in order for this to work you have to either scare or hurt the horse Otherwise, it it doesn't work. So the horse is, um, you know, free to roam about and he doesn't have anything on him. So it must be humane because you're not touching him. Well, let's think about this. When you are at your, uh, when you're at a family dinner and your parents um, correct you or tell you that, um, you know, no video games for a week if you don't um, behave the way they want you to. And uh, they embarrass you in front of the whole family. They're yelling at you. It's hurting your feelings. And it's scaring you a little bit because it's never fun when your parents yell at you. Um, Is that not uh, unpleasant or punishing? Um, Is it humane? Uh, I mean, maybe it depends on your definition of humane. But the same can be said for dogs. When you look at a dog and you yell at them and say no or hey, stop that, um, most of them, 
if they have had experience with that being connected to something else in the past, they will jump at it and they will be like, whoa, what? And so it depends on the individual animal as to what, um, you know, their definition of unpleasant is. For some animals, it is touch. They don't like being pet. Um, and it's uncomfortable and you could use it to, um, negatively reinforce things. You could get the horse to do what you want by removing your touch because they find it aversive. So it's all dependent on the animal and to say that it is humane and that you are not using fear tactics or being forceful because you're not touching the horse is a logical fallacy because it, um, discounts the psychological effects that you're having on the horse, which there are plenty. Um, you're chasing it around an area that it is trapped in. It has no way of getting away from you. So eventually when it, um, you know, realizes that, you know, you're not going to stop unless it does something else, um, it might start lowering its head or putting its ear on you and, or looking at you or acting like it's going to maybe come towards you a little bit. Then when you, let off the gas a little bit and you stop swinging the rope or yelling or doing whatever you're doing, then the horse relaxes a little bit and then they're like, oh, okay, that's what makes them stop. And then they want to stay close to you because that's what's working. They want to be near you because you're not going to make them leave, um, you know, or you're not going to scare them and hurt them um, if they're close to you because that's what you're reinforcing. Um, so, it and I have to agree that it just doesn't have a place in training. Um, I think that we often pick the most aggressive route because think about it: horses are fight or flight animals. They um, are prone to being afraid. <laughs> they are prey animals, and they are also twenty four seven grazers. They really, really like food. They're very motivated by it. They're also very motivated by fear. So why do we always seem to choose in traditional training the fear and discomfort route rather than the other route that is equally motivating for a horse? <laughs> um, and I'm not talking about emergency circumstances. I am talking about training. Um, the barn is not burning down in training sessions. Um, I'm talking about, you know, when you're prepping for the barn burning down. Okay, so um, there's also a video of this. It's very short and doesn't really it's it's just essentially if you want to watch a car drive around and chase a horse and then watch the horse walk up to it when it stops um but it is um i'll read the description because i think it's a little bit helpful this video is a demonstration of negative reinforcement in a round pin setting the pony has been taught that the way to stop the remote controlled car is for her to approach it she was quite afraid of the car in the early sessions but learned very quickly how to turn off the car's chasing mode by not running away from it eventually we shaped her behavior so that she would actually approach it we rewarded her for not running away from the car by chasing uh, her with it. This behavior got reinforced. Uh, oh, wait. The behavior that got reinforced was stopping and approaching the car. This is an example of negative reinforcement in a free operant signaled avoidance conditioning context. We believe that the results of this research suggest that round pin training may rely on the offset of states of fear, anxiety, or fatigue to reinforce target behavior of approaching and following a trainer further research is required to confirm these findings so do we really want to count on the horse getting tired or anxious or afraid to do what we want uh, my answer to that question is no um but that is the toy car experiment with join up and i hope that it also explains why a horse follows you after join up it is because it does not want you to continue being aggressive and some horses get there quicklier 
more quickly than others, quickly or LOL. Um, and some are like right on your side and are like, okay, I don't want to, don't want to go away. Going away equals bad things. So I'm going to be right on top of you and other horses. Um, it'll take a few times of sending them back out. Okay. Number three, I have been told to resemble horses in the paddock by being the alpha thoughts. So I think we can all pretty much assume which direction I'm going to go in answering this question. Um, the alpha doesn't exist. Um, the last episode, I talked more about this, but it's not true. Um, there is evidence that supports that that is also not true in dogs. There is no such thing as the alpha dog, the alpha male, nothing like that. The only term or t- uh instance, I guess, in which there would be an alpha male, I guess, would be in a wild herd of horses. There is a um, uh, a stallion. There usually isn't more than one stallion. And um, <laughs> so, I mean, like, it's, it doesn't really make sense. Um, also, listen to the previous episode for more in-depth information on that. It's, it doesn't bear repeating again uh, when there's already an episode on it. So, um by being by resembling an alpha in the paddock what does that mean to you um to me when i was told to be the alpha or the leader or be dominant that meant be aggressive it meant get after the horse make them move their feet um make them submit there was no choice there was no asking there was no positive reinforcement it was strictly um, you're going to do what I want, whether you are afraid, in pain, or don't understand what I'm asking. Um, so, I mean, it depends on what you mean by alpha, but from my understanding of what it tends to mean in the horse world, I would say um, don't <laughs> listen to that. Um, you're not resembling horses in the paddock either. There is no such thing as an, a one true alpha in the the in like most herd settings wild herd settings um domesticated horses tend to be a little bit different but that is due to lack of resources um unnatural social settings and um space usually uh but there are more questions on that that i'll get to um in a bit so in conclusion don't do that. Um, number four, how would I deal with a pushy horse without traditional dominance theory? So in order to answer this question, I found a really good article that kind of like touched and covered all the bases. It's from meadowfamilyrescue.com slash ditch dominance. Um, I'll link it down below as well. Um, but essentially, um, on their page, they, they kind of like bust all of the myths, um, and myth number six is pushy horses are being dominant, uh, which is very close to the listener's question that says, how would I deal with a pushy horse without traditional dominance theory? So, um, this question kind of answers both. So horses tend to get close, uh, to you when they are afraid, if they, um, you know, generally trust you or like you, um, Think about like a mare and foal. If, um, you know, you introduce a mare and a foal to a new herd, the foal is going to stick right next to the mare like they're glued um, because it's a secure base and they want to be protected. Um, So it's a little bit of a compliment if you think about it. Um, But bargy uh, can also be a learned behavior. Your horse has learned to run all over you 
because it is reinforcing in some capacity. Maybe the horse just gets what he wants. And what you're asking him to do is not um, salient or motivating enough. Um, He doesn't get anything good out of it. So why would he do it when he could just drag you to the grass? Um, So maybe make what you're asking more interesting. Um, And also the horse who knocks you out of the way when you open the stable is not being dominant. He is doing all he can to escape from a cage. It's not about you. It's about him. And regardless of your stance on stalls, whatever, I plan to do an episode on this at some point, and I feel like it's going to trigger the entire equestrian community. Um, But in most circumstances, horses do not need to be stalled and tend not to fare um, as best as they could in stalls. Um, And sometimes it can be scary, really scary for a horse to be stuck in a 12 by 12 or you know, smaller or perhaps bigger and uh, with just some hay that maybe lasts them a fourth of their morning and then they get it again at night. Um, so when you let them out, um, they are perhaps not being pushy, but maybe they are afraid or they're really excited to get out. And that is more uh, motivating than perhaps the reprimand that they know they're going to receive when you shank them or put the chain around their nose or, um, or just the fact that they're running you over. It might just be more motivating than all of those, even if you don't react. Um, so the, that, those are some potential reasons. And then um, the riders at Meadow Family Rescue also um, offer some, some ways to consider uh, why the horse is being pushy. Um, and pushy also is an interesting word. Uh, Again, if you've listened to the podcast, you probably know my stance on labeling behaviors as rude or dominant or pushy. Those all imply intent uh, that horses don't have. It's the same as respect. They likely have no concept of what we think those words mean. So horses aren't being pushy in a way that a person would be pushy. If a person's pushy, they're probably being rude and don't care about you, don't have a regard for your feelings and, um, you know, think that whatever they're doing is much more important than what you're doing. Horses, it's not, it's more nuanced than that. And pushy implies that attitude. It's anthropomorphic and is not something that horses really conceptualize according to the research. So, um, it's just that label is already problematic because if you think, um, they're like, take it this way. So you have a horse and in scenario one, your horse is pushy. Think about how you would react if you say your horse is pushy, or if somebody says, Hey, your horse is being really pushy. How do you feel about that? Scenario two, hey, your horse is really anxious. How do you feel about that? Scenario three, hey, your horse is afraid. How do you feel about that? Hey, your horse doesn't understand what's going on. Those are four very different circumstances. In two of or the last three, you have compassion and perhaps empathy for your horse because maybe you've been afraid, scared, or confused before. And you're like, oh, okay, I can help the horse. In scenario number one, the horse is being pushy. Your reaction is to be aggressive, to immediately make that behavior stop by any means necessary. 
um, and you're irritated and you're frustrated with the horse because he is disrespecting you. There, it's it, perception is a huge part of this because if you label a horse as your enemy, somebody that is trying to um, take something away from you or harm you, you've created an adversarial relationship where the horse does not win ever, and you're just trying to control this obnoxious thing. And it is like, okay, and you don't want the horse to stop being pushy because you've shanked it enough and taught it that it, it dare not cross you. Otherwise, it's going to be beaten. That's not, think about that relationship in people terms. And obviously, horses and people are not a one-to-one comparison. But think about that. Like, if you have your father and you're walking next to him, and you cut him off, and he smacks you across the face, you might not cross him again, but you aren't doing it because you're afraid you're going to get smacked in the face again. Not because you know that he would prefer it, and subsequently that good things happen if you just walk beside him. Say maybe he gives you a lollipop. Maybe you're like lollipops. I don't know. I'm thinking of food rewards here. Or a hot dog. Or a, a salad. Whatever food you really like. He gives you that for walking beside you, beside him and not cutting him off. You're going to want to do that because, A, now you have a good association with it because it was paired with a primary reinforcer. B, you expect good things to come from it because you often get rewarded for doing the right thing. And B, you're not getting smacked in the face. <laughs> like, Hello. I hate horse training so much sometimes. It just, and like the thing is, it's so frustrating because I have done this many times. Sorry about the dogs barking. Okay, so anyway, I'm going to read some of these, um, some things to consider. So number one, enjoy it when your horse wants to spend time within your personal space. So the horse is getting close to you because he's afraid because he is using you as a base for safety. It may be annoying because you don't particularly like getting stepped on or smacked in the face <laughs> with a big horse jaw, but, um, you know, it's, it's a compliment, <laughs> uh, but you can also work to increase that space and still allow the horse to feel safe and like you've got his back. Um, Two, earn respect, earn their respect and show them respect by treating them compassionately. So if you remember the four scenarios that I listed, three of those, the anxious, fearful, and confused scenarios, you are treating the horse compassionately, not as an adversary as you would in the pushy example. So also another thing that I like to say is respect is earned, not taken. Think about your favorite teachers, the ones that were super nice to you. And when there was a problem, they explained it to you, helped you understand and actually teach you. You respected those teachers so much. The teachers that were rude and forceful and threatening, those teachers you did not respect. You were afraid of them and you did not want to cross them for fear of what they might do. But that does not equal respect. That's <laughs> caution uh, and fear, just straight up fear. So that's not how I want to train my horses. I want to be the, the one where they know that they can come to me when they're confused and they can, um, you know, help, realize that I'm going to help them, that I'm not here to hurt them and force them, that we can achieve the same results without that. Okay, continuing on. Number three only train your horse when they feel safe. So don't expect your horse to, you know, do everything you want perfectly, especially new behaviors. When the wind is blowing, you know, the two other horses got out and dogs are chasing them 
and all the other horses on the farm are running and there's lightning crackling. Like, um, let's not do that. The horse doesn't feel safe. Or if they're in a new environment, asking for new things can be really challenging because there's a lot going on. They don't feel safe. It's not their home. It's uncomfortable. So have compassion for that and don't ask too much and only work on new behaviors and trying to ask for more when the horse is not over threshold. So I think what this um, Meadow Family Rescue is talking about specifically in this point is when a horse is being pushy, if they are in a circumstance in which they don't feel safe, it's usually because it's out of fear or anxiety. Um, So don't try and really, I mean, obviously you have to do what you have to do to be safe, Uh, but don't try and tell the horse, you know, correct it and um, try and push the issue. Like if the horse is running over you next to a busy road, now is probably not the time to try and train the horse to walk beside you. You probably best bet is to do what you got to do to get out of there, not, you know, force the issue. Number four, before you train, think about, is it ethical to do so? The example they give is, um, is it really in your horse's best interest to teach them to have their ear hair clipped? Um, So if a horse obviously is like being pushy and knocking you over or whatever, because you're trying to clip its ears, is it, is it necessary to clip the horse's ears? Does it have to be clipped? Um, I personally have never been a fan of ear clipping. Don't get me wrong. I think it looks way better. (laughs) Um, But I'm like, in the summer, we got hella bugs. I don't want bugs flying in their ears. The hair keeps it out. Um, And in the winter, it keeps their ears warm. So I'm like, windy, because Arkansas has summer and winter. That's it. Um, So it's either really hot and very buggy or very cold, not buggy, very cold. (laughs) Uh, So I I just, I never clipped them and the horses don't really like it. Um, I mean, if your horse does, cool. But it's talking about a horse that's being pushy in the circumstance. Is it necessary? Like if a horse is jerking because you're clipping off their whiskers, do you have to? Also, you probably shouldn't. There's research on that. Don't do it. Um, number five, use habituation when introducing new objects and situations. So this means introducing the horse multiple times until they are not afraid. That does not equal flooding and shoving the scary object onto their body until they give up. That is not the same thing. Um, so, you know, letting the horse walk up to it, sniff it, get used to it, hang out around it, graze near it, and then work its way up, come see it, leave, come see it again, leave, you know, letting the horse do it at its own pace and not forcing it like flooding does. Um, six, you, when training, watch your horse to make sure they are not displaying the four Fs, fight, flight, freeze, or fidget. Um, those are signs of anxiety and fear. And when they are locked up in their sympathetic nervous system, which is when those things come into play, you cannot train. When a horse is terrified or when a horse is frozen or highly anxious, it cannot learn. Think about it. If you have a gun to your head, you're not going to learn algebra. <laughs> you're terrified. You know, like it, 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 don't, it don't make no sense. Okay. Um, number seven, find out the underlying cause of why challenging behavior is occurring. So instead of saying, oh my God, you stupid horse, you're being so pushy because, or, okay, let's think of an example here. You're trying to walk your horse from the stall to the paddock and you're like, okay, well, let's reverse it because that's easier to explain. So say you're walking the horse from the paddock to the stall and you say to the horse that is balking, it's refusing to walk towards the stall. You say, oh my God, you're being so pushy and you refuse to go in the direction I want you to go. You keep pulling me to the other direction. How rude. 
versus scenario two, where you say, hmm, I wonder why the horse doesn't want to go to a stall. One option, you're locked into the behavior. The horse is just being a dick. Like you have, there's no alternative other than to be a dick back and be scarier than the thing that the horse is afraid of or worse than the thing that the horse doesn't like. Um, in scenario two, where uh, you ask why the horse doesn't like it, maybe his stall is really dark and it takes a second for his eyes to adjust and that um, is off-putting to him and it's potentially frightening and takes him a second. And when you um, in the past have walked up to the stall and he doesn't go in, you hit him with the whip. Well, now the stall is a really bad thing. He's very afraid of the stall because he gets hit with the whip. And so he's connecting the whip with the stall, not the whip with, I have to go into the stall to avoid the whip. You see? Um, So in one option, you go, hmm, maybe I should make the stall a really good place or something that the horse likes to do uh, instead of something that he doesn't like to do. Maybe he doesn't get any food when he's in the stall. Maybe he is really fat and cannot be on hay or grain and has to come in for part of the day. A, probably not the best way to handle weight loss. B, the horse is going to dread going to that stall. Dread it. And it will be so difficult to get the horse into the stall because he's hate, he hates it. And the horse is not being a jerk, he, but he can't possibly understand why you need him in there. But you can have compassion at the same time and still ask in a way that is kind and empathetic of the horse's situation. Okay, uh, so uh, eight, make a plan of action of how you can support them and train them using positive reinforcement. So again, with the stall situation, perhaps you just have to get it over with one time, but then come back and write down, write out what's happening and figure out a plan to make it happen in a less aversive way where you don't have to whip the horse into the stall or pull on his face. Number nine, when appropriate, use light, non-escalating negative reinforcement. So sometimes I have to do this with um, our foals, especially the young stud colts, because they just, (laughs) they're so hard-headed and they just want to play. And sometimes, um, Uh, in order to help them learn how to give to pressure, I apply the lightest, maybe one or two pounds of pressure, just enough to where the rope is straight. If I'm standing at a distance away from them, there's no slack in the rope, it's straight. And, um, but I'm not pulling any harder than that to stretch it out or make it super tight or where they have to extend their heads all the way out. That, I just hold it. And if I see any sign that they're thinking about going forward, if an ear flicks forward, if a chest muscle twitches like they're going to move forward, I release and I, re- I reinforce for that. And then, then it goes really fast and works its way right up to their giving to pressure every single time. You do not have to gradually increase, 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 increase like they teach you in Pirelli. Like if you're teaching a horse to back up, you shake the rope a little bit and then you shake it more and then you shake it more and then you shake it more. You're not even giving the horse a second to think about it. You're just being a lot until the horse learns that there's an or else. And uh, if the horse doesn't move uh, when you gently shake the rope that you're going to escalate, it's a threat. Escalating negative reinforcement is almost always a threat. And non-escalating negative reinforcement, there is, I guess, still a threat of like, okay, I'm going to keep doing it until you do what I want. But it it can be kinder and arguably less aversive um, than, you know, some of the other alternatives. And sometimes it can just help provide more information. And sometimes you can um, 
combine reinforcement, um, especially if the reason that the horse wants to give to pressure is not because it wants to relieve it, but because he's going to get scratches on the other side, which is how I train the babies. Um, like Azula, for instance, with her, um, I just would stand at a distance and when she would walk up to me, I would click and scratch her. And, um, there's videos of it on my YouTube channel if you want to watch, uh, that more in depth, but I would, um, I would scratch her from walking up to me and then gradually, um, right before she would take a step, I would, um, straighten out the rope. Um, so there was just a little bit of pressure, but she was already thinking about moving forward. So then I would click and reinforce. And then now the reason that she is giving to that pressure is because she wants the scratches, not because she wants the pressure off. I mean, I'm sure there's some play of both, but one is more motivating than the other. Um, I hope that that makes sense. Okay, so we are moving on to our question at number five, and we are at 50 minutes. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'm going to have to pick up the pace. Stop rambling. Okay, number five. Is there really such a thing as respect in horse training, or is it just something we humans say to justify our relationship with horses slash what we're doing while training them? I think that respect in the way that is often used in horse training does not exist in horse training. So saying that the horse respects you, meaning that the horse does whatever you want without question or hesitation or obstinance, um, that is what we define as respect. It's like uh, unconditional obedience. And that is not really a thing anywhere except in dictatorships and abusive relationships. Um, but I think the concept of respect in, I will not push you past your limit. I will not ask you to do anything that you are not capable of doing or that will hurt you or scare you. Um, that is respect. That is having respect for the horse. And I think that that absolutely has a place in training because that's what you would do to a human student or a dog student, I hope. Um, you know, you you don't do things that are going to bring harm to the animal, either physically, emotionally, or psychologically. And um, often respect is demanded in horse training. You hear trainers say, you have got to make him respect you. He's being disobedient. He's being disrespectful. And no, he's not. First of all, it's a horse. They don't have that concept. There is no scientific evidence supporting that horses have a concept of a hierarchy or respect. When those studies are done, hit me up. But so far they show that they absolutely do not have a concept of hierarchy. And I personally think that that concept is more concrete and less ambiguous than the concept of respect. So, cause I just have already given two definitions of respect. There's really only one of hierarchy. So if they can't understand a, a simpler concept, there's no way that they can understand the concept of respect as arbitrary and abstract as that idea is. That would be like saying, I don't know, a horse can, I don't know. I'm trying to think of another abstract. Um, I don't know, whatever. Anyway, trying to go a little bit faster here. So no, I don't think that, I think that what you've said that it's to justify, I wouldn't say our relationship, um, but I would, well, maybe, yeah, justify our relationship with horses um, slash what we're doing while training them. So you're justifying that 
um, you're protecting the relationship and you're keeping it healthy by keeping you as the dominant one that um, commands respect. Um, and that is a lot nicer way to say I'm scaring the horse into doing what I want. Um, and the horse is afraid to cross me so he doesn't act quote disrespectfully meaning he doesn't do the things that I don't like um so I think it's semantics and I think it's euphemizing the situation it's make in other words making it sound nicer than it is so that it's easier to justify number six if you have a nervous horse who needs a confident human does that still count as dominant theory so I put this question down even though it's a little bit confusing to me because I'm gonna I'm gonna try to understand it so a nervous horse who needs a confident human does that still count as dominant theory so I think I could see how this would apply in like a situation like join up like the horse is nervous because it's afraid of you and the human is being confident by being the one that's scaring the horse um that definitely is dominant theory it's working off of the idea that the horse will submit and respect you as leader um so in that situation yes but a horse who is maybe green and uncomfortable and um maybe isn't really familiar with having a rider on their back hopefully you would have done preparatory work um, before going anywhere new or asking anything uh new or difficult of the horse um to try to ameliorate that uh, nervousness, but a confident human is fine as long as they're being kind, not pushing the horse past its limits, not being um, aggressive or harmful, either emotionally, mentally, I guess I was going to say psychologically, emotionally, psychologically, or physically, um, you can be confident and you can be a confident rider who um, calms the horse down. That's what a confident rider is to me. Um, not someone who is harsh and demanding. Um, so uh, I hope I answered that question um, the way you wanted. <laughs> um, number seven, I want to know more about the separation between negative reinforcement and dominance theory. Obviously, there's overlap, but I want to clarify so I can train with si kinder and scientific negative reinforcement while when not using positive reinforcement. So ways to ride traditionally, but not aggressively slash dominant to make the horse scared, etc. So, um, I think those are actually two separate questions and I, uh, combine them. Um, but essentially the definition of negative reinforcement is the removal of an aversive, unpleasant, or annoying stimulus. So anything that the horse finds annoying, unpleasant, or painful, um, or frightening. So when you remove that, it increases whatever behavior was preceding it. So in the instance of leading a horse, um, it, you pull on the lead rope and then when the horse takes a step forward and you release it, the horse goes, oh, I took a step forward right before they released. So the step forward must trigger the release of this uncomfortable lead rope pulling. Um, so that's negative reinforcement. Dominance theory says um, that you have to be the alpha in order to get the horse to obey, essentially. That's one way of putting it. Um, those are two very different things. Uh, one has an ego trip in it dominance theory and um is a blatant justification for your actions by anything that the horse does that you don't like is automatically labeled disrespectful so if the horse doesn't walk forward you're like oh he's being disrespectful he's ignoring me he's being rude uh, he's being bad 
that's that's the the ideology of dominance theory. Negative reinforcement doesn't say that at all. Negative reinforcement says that when the behavior that I would like to see happen happens, I'll release the pressure. It doesn't say that you have to escalate the pressure. You have to get harder. You have to get scarier. It doesn't say that the horse must submit and it must accept its role as lower on the totem pole. It must accept me as leader. It doesn't say any of that. It just says if the horse does the behavior, then it gets reinforced by me removing the thing it doesn't like. That's it. Um, So yes, they are not, well, yeah, they are not mutually exclusive and they are also not mutually inclusive, I guess. I don't know what the word is for that. Um, but they, they don't have to happen at the same time. You can use negative reinforcement without using dominance theory. And, um, that just means that maybe you are like me and I don't subscribe to dominance theory anymore, but like when I'm working with the foals, um, I'm not waiting on them to move because then they'll show me that they view me as the leader or I'm not uh, aggressing and making my uh, pull on the leader up harsher, more intense or stronger because they're disrespecting me. It's a paradigm versus a training method, if that makes sense. Um, So riding traditionally, but not aggressively or dominant to make the horse scared. Essentially, you're just saying, okay, the horse is not doing things. The horse isn't, oh my God, the horse is not following my direction or, um, responding to the cues that I want it to because it doesn't get it. It's confused. It hurts, um, any number of things, but not because the horse is being disobedient or disrespectful or a jerk. Um, maybe his neck is out. Maybe that's why he's not turning when I'm riding. Maybe, um, he needs to see a chiropractor or a muscle therapist, or maybe, um, his feet are sore and it hurts when he puts weight on that direction. Um, so, it's it's really just a paradigm shift and not viewing the horse as this animal that's trying to take over you all the time and get the better of you and if you let it have any inch it's just going to run away and become your leader like that's it's a ridiculous concept to me um and also puts you in this position where you want to be mean to the animal because if the animal is being mean to you the I guess only appropriate response I've never known anyone to say oh that horse is being so pushy and then be nice. That doesn't happen. The, the people, like, it, it just doesn't work. When you view the horse as being or acting uh, negatively or against your will or doing something wrong or bad, you're going to be aggressive or adversarial towards it. But when the horse is confused or um, perhaps uncomfortable or in pain or anxious or afraid um, or just simply confused, then you're like, okay, I can help it. There's two completely different ways of looking at those situations. So, um, yes, you can ride with negative reinforcement without dominance theory, and you can do it non-escalating and uh, also incorporate positive reinforcement. Um, Okay, number eight, can you reverse dominance slash punishment training with positive reinforcement? Uh, This question is tricky to answer because it is dependent on the horse and their... um, their memory and their individual trust. If the horse has a history of abuse and you've perpetuated that, um, you know, even if you hadn't, the horse might never fully trust you um, because it's, there's always going to be that little fear in the back of its mind that, um, you know, you're going to, you're going to do something to 
heard it. So um, I think that you can absolutely assuage their concerns and make them more comfortable and more trusting. And I think you can largely get rid of the um, fearful, learned helplessness or um, aggressive behaviors uh, if you use positive reinforcement or if you just stop being dominating or dominating and punishing, um, then I don't know if you'll ever get the horse back to uh, baseline or above. Um, but I think it's possible and it is absolutely worth a shot. <laughs> um, it's called counter conditioning uh, in most cases. So again, like if the horse has a really long history of, um, I don't know, being hit with a whip. I don't know that you're ever going to get the horse to fully trust that when you swing it, it's not going to hurt. I think they're probably going to still have at least a little bit of memory uh, that it will hurt. Even if you swing it and then give them a treat every time, it's probably going to be very confusing. It's probably going to poison it and uh, make the horse conflicted emotionally because uh, they're going to be afraid but still wanting the treat. Um, and that, that is a huge problem that I have with join up as well that I forgot to mention, um, that the only way for the horse to make you stop being scary is to approach you, which is a, a wildly uncomfortable position to be in. Like there aren't words for that. Like imagine there is a man who is shooting at you. It's very scary. You hate that. And the only way to make him stop is to walk up to him. Think about how terrifying that is. That is such an emotional conundrum to be in because the horse is learning that the only way he gets you to stop is by being like kind and approaching you. And I say kind in like lowering his head and offering, um, they're called calming signals. I talked more about it in the previous episode, um, but they're, they're asking you to calm down when they lower their head and lick and chew and put their ear on you. They're asking, they're saying, I, I see you. I'm aware of you. Can you calm down? And those behaviors also simultaneously try to calm the horse down. And that licking and chewing behavior is simply coming down from the sympathetic nervous system. When you're in fight or flight mode, um, your digestion and other, um, non-essential uh systems shut off when you're that scared and so when you start to calm down by doing calming signals or asking somebody to relax and um you bring it down a notch your digestion kicks back on and that's often why you see licking and chewing because their mouth is being filled with saliva again um so those are some things to consider but i just really want to stress the importance of um you know like it's really wrong, I think, like fundamentally to ask a horse to approach you and that be the only way to get you to stop scaring them. Like that is, is a really difficult situation for anybody to be in, let alone an animal. Like, ugh. um, so anyway, in conclusion, can you reverse dominance punishment training with positive reinforcement? I think you can do a whole lot of good in that realm. I don't know if you'll ever fully reverse it. I think it depends on the horse and the history, but I think that, um, to some degree, yes, and it will absolutely help. So number nine, why do some horses seem like the leader when enough resources are available? Um, i.e. how do I explain who, uh, a horse who's acting dominant when it doesn't seem like resource guarding? So, um, if you listen to the last episode, you know that that is one of the, um, like most prominent times when you see a horse being quote unquote aggressive. And most of the time they're not actually aggressing on another horse. They're not actually biting or kicking them. They might run at them. They might bare their teeth or pin their ears or lift a foot, but they're not actually engaging in aggressive behaviors. They're warning and saying, Hey, 
don't come here, don't touch my stuff. Um, but it's rarely ever actually aggression, which is where that parallel between how horses communicate and how humans communicate as horses doesn't make sense. You know, when horses, when people say horses do it to each other, um, you don't warn the horse. Like if they do something you don't like and you hit them, um, you're not taking the, the precursory step that horses take. You're just going straight to the full-blown one, which they rarely do, um, at least in, like, normal, healthy settings. Um, so when it doesn't, when, so why do horses seem like the leader when enough resources are available? Um, it depends because what it may seem to you, um, may not seem the same to the horse. So it's, it's like how for you, you might be absolutely terrified of spiders, but your best friend Sally has a pet spider. There's a difference in perception. So maybe you see enough grass and the horse hasn't, you know, always had access to plenty of grass in his life. So when he finds a really good patch, he's going to be really aggressive because his perception's different. And, um, it's, it's, I mean, the same thing as the human and spider example. Um, it's, it's different. And, you know, maybe to you, um, the 2006 Toyota Camry you just got is your prized possession because you saved up and you, um, you found it and you bought it and now it's yours, but you know, somebody else looks at it and is like, that's not a very nice car. It's a difference in perception and you're going to protect your car and want to keep it clean. And, um, if somebody encroaches on it, you're going to be like, Hey, don't slam the door, you know, be nice to it. Don't put your feet up on the dash. It's the same thing with horses, obviously less car and cleanliness oriented. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so uh, how do I explain a horse who's acting dominant when it doesn't seem like resource guarding? That's the key word, that it doesn't seem like resource guarding. And it very well might not be. The horse might just not like the other horse, or they might have had a bad experience with a horse like that, or that looks like that. Um, That one is more of a stretch, I think. Um, But it, it really depends on the horse's perception. I think that that's the best way to explain that, because the horse could feel like there's a resource to guard, or maybe that horse is in pain and doesn't want the other horse to come bother it. Um, maybe they're hot and don't want the other horse near it. I mean, there are endless explanations, and, um, you know, it's kind of like when you're with your dog, and you know that they can hear way better than you, and they look off in the distance, and they're really alert, and maybe they growl at something. You, you're not like, oh my god, you're so stupid. How could you be behaving like that? There's nothing there. You're probably more apt to trust that the dog can hear something you can't, and you're probably going to move away because you're like, wow, something over there is not good news, and we're going to leave now because I'm trusting that the dog is interpreting something that I'm not, and it could very well be the same in the horse's situation. Um, they just, they see something that you don't, um, not necessarily threatening, but, um, you know, they, they see something that is worth guarding, um, or they're, they have a reason. All behavior has a reason. And there is no evidence to support that horses act quote unquote dominantly because they're the leader of the herd and they want to control all the other horses in the herd. It also depends on your definition of dominant. Do you mean that the horse is being aggressive? Um, those are two different things because dominant, what it actually means like in terms of like the actual definition is uh, power over others. So in the horse 
community, I guess, like in a horse's herd. Um, in the wild, quote unquote, dominant behavior, I guess, would be deciding when the herd moves or um, who has primary access to a resource. So um, those two things are not what we <laughs> we say dominance is uh, in training or in our domesticated herds. We say a horse is being dominant when it's pinning its ears and running other horses off. But in the, in the herd, when a horse initiates movement, which is dominance, quote unquote, um, it's not really a good word for it, but, um, you know, the, the leader, if you will, that's what we equate with dominance. Um, the leader who tells the, the herd that they, it's time to move, change spots. We're going now. It can be any member of the herd. And it's often a democratic decision where they all kind of signal to each other. They're like, are you ready to go? Can we move? And then they're like, yeah, sure. Um, or, uh, the lead mare comes from, um, her often being pregnant and lactating and therefore needing more resources like food and water. So they are more apt to move and search um, for the things that they need more often. Um, so, and that's also an, an important distinction to make. I know I made this point in the last one, but I'm, it bears repeating um, that <laughs> the, the dominance in that scenario is departure. The horses are leaving the herd. They're not rounding everybody up and chasing them in the direction they want to go, which is what we do as trainers. We're not just leaving and then the horse follows. That's there's a very big difference there in that kind of leadership. Um so it, it depends. Um that's what I have to say. Uh I would trust the horse and not to label it as there being the dominant leader. Um, also we tend to use those two things as separate ideas. Um, but in science, the quote unquote dominant horses are the leaders, but in horse training, we tend to just use dominance. And the idea of a leader is more like a dictator. You know, the horse must obey and follow every single rule because you're their leader and they don't know what to do if they don't have a leader, which leads me into my next question which is number 10, the often overstated, in my opinion, phrase that horses need you to be their leader. They don't. They're just fine doing what they're doing. Uh, why do they need you to be their leader? Maybe perhaps in uh, a new environment when uh, you're walking them around the showgrounds, you know, they might need you to walk them around because they don't know the place very well and you have a nice big human brain and you're going to recognize things that are scary and hopefully help the horse understand and or keep them away from it and um, make them comfortable, I would hope. Um, but that is not the same as uh, being their leader in the saddle or on the ground um, because often we say, oh, well, you know, the horse is not walking politely next to you. You're their leader, which means it translates to you need to correct the horse and fix that. Um, and it is never said that you need to be their leader and correct that in terms of help the horse understand and be kind and use positive reinforcement and actually train the horse through successive approximations in a way that he can understand that's easy and, um, uh, conducive to learning, low stress. It's always no beat him, get him out of your space, elbow him in the face if you have to. And the, <laughs> no. So in conclusion, they don't need you to be their leader at all. Not supported by science, not a fact, um, false. Number 11, how do you tell the difference between a playful type that seems dominant and an actual dominant horse? So again, 
dominant horses are not a thing in the way that you think. And um, I'm assuming this question was asked before I put up the episode. Um, And the way all of these questions are using dominant, you could put aggression in place and it would be the same thing, if not a better, more accurate term. Um, So a playful type that seems aggressive and an actual aggressive horse. Those are two very, very different things. Um, so like, I mean, a playful type of horse, um, is probably going to have bright eyes and perked ears and, um, usually younger and, uh, more spirited. And, uh, I mean, older horses can be like this as well, but oftentimes, uh, we giggle and label behavior, giggle at and label behavior that is actually fearful or anxious behavior like weaving or head bobbing in a stall we're like oh haha he's so weird oh my god what is he doing with his mouth stretching his jaw like that and being all strange uh, moving all over the place he's dancing to the song nope anxiety sorry wrong science says you're wrong um otherwise horses are pretty chill they don't like to do those things it's very hard on their body it's uncomfortable um so it it also depends on your what you perceive as play and if it is actually what the horse perceives as play cuz none of our opinions don't matter. Alexander Carlin puts it best by saying go to people for opinions and horses for answers. The horse is the only one that can tell you if he is actually enjoying himself and being playful or if it is a, if it is fear. If a horse is running around the arena with its tail up in the air and you can see the whites of its eyes and it has uh, triangle eyes where their their brows really crinkly and uh, maybe their nostrils are really big or pulled back, um, that's not a horse that is playing. That is a horse that is panicked and fearful. Um, so again, it depends. And in that circumstance, that horse is probably going to be all over you, running you over. Um, but sometimes they are playful. Um, it, I don't think happens as much as we think because we tend to label anxious behaviors as playful behaviors because it is easier for our tiny human brains to digest that the horse is having a good time and is just being silly rather than, um, you're doing something that's stressing it out. (laughs) Uh, like for Zoe, she was weaving and doing jaw stretches and head bobbing and swinging her head in circles. Um, and I thought it was funny. I have so many videos. I mean, laughing at that. Um, nope, anxious, hated being stalled, (laughs) had history from racetrack, hated it. And now that she's turned out, all of those behaviors went away. Um, so, um, and then the difference between that and an actual dominant horse, I'm sure, um, if you were like using dominant in the way that I think you are, you would probably see more ear pinning, nostrils pulled back, teeth bared, um, angry, dark eyes, um, really, rigid, lowered, like ready to attack body, uh, body posture. Um, and if you want to read more on behavior and sort of like true horse language, not Monty Roberts, uh, pseudoscience on why or how to communicate as a horse, um, read language signs and calming signals by Raquel Dreisma. It's available on Amazon. It's a green book, pretty cool cover. It's pictures and it has so much research in it and it is pretty easy to read it's a little dry but it is very simple to follow step one the horse eye looks like this it means this according to science blah 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 make you smart human who does not think that weaving is funny um and also 
subsequently, when you stop thinking that weaving is funny, it doesn't mean that you're just a fuddy dud who thinks all behavior uh, acted out by your horse is fear and pain. It means that you can prevent those behaviors from happening like I did with Zoe. I took her out of the stall and now she's much happier. Um, And that is not one-to-one. That does not mean that all horses in the stall exhibit the same behaviors. I'm not saying that. I'm saying her problem was that being stalled caused her anxiety. So we put her outside, fixed the problem. Um, So when it's funny, you keep the horse in the stall because it's funny. They're just being silly um, and they want attention. But when the horse is um, uncomfortable or afraid, uh, then you want to do something about it. So it motivates you differently. Um, okay. The last in the section of just general questions is number 12. Are there any cases where dominant theory, dominance theory has worked with horses? Um, again, all depends on your definition of worked. Um, by worked, do you mean the horse has stopped doing whatever behavior you didn't like? Sure. If you beat a horse enough times, it will eventually figure out that it shouldn't do that um, or you're going to hit it. And uh, so, I mean, in that way, yes, but does it make a horse respect you, which I believe is the goal of dominance theory? I'm going to go with no because respect is A, earned, not taken. Uh, and B, not a concept that horses uh, have any conceptualization of. So, no. Uh, does it make them submissive? No. because Maybe in terms of, like, strict behavior, like if you perceive a horse lowering its head and uh, not entering your space as being submissive, then yes, but submission... Uh, or by implication, submission is not supported by science either uh, because dominance isn't. So you, you can't have one and not the other. Um, the horse is not being submissive. He's trying to calm you down or appease you, not because submission implies lowering in rank and um, accepting as leader. And as we have said extensively, that's not a thing. So submission isn't either, nor do you, I personally do not want a militant little robot following me around um, as an excuse for a horse. <laughs> That's not what I like uh, my horses to be like. I want them to be expressive and have personalities while being safe and having a clear understanding of what I would like for them to do and what is going to best um, benefit them. So are there any cases where dominance theory has worked with horses? It totally depends on your definition of worked. If the goal is to get the horse to do what you want, I'm sure people that subscribe to dominance theory have gotten their horses to do what they want. In fact, I know that they have. It has often worked for me in the past. But in the way that your horse loves, quote-unquote, respects, quote-unquote, is obedient um, and genuinely understands what you're asking and is motivated to do what you want, um, no, it doesn't. (laughs) Uh, I don't have empirical research to back that up because horses uh, don't respect in the way that we think they do and they're not obedient in the way that we think they are um it's all about motivation and understanding and um you know having fun making the experience pleasant um so dominant series in direct contrast with that uh, which is why i have such a huge problem with it because i don't think it has a place in horse training okay So these are advising situations, and I'm going to try and crack through these because uh, we are at an hour and a half, and we got 24 questions, and I'm on number 13. So 
Advice, how to teach a horse to stop biting without aggression. I have a YouTube video on this. Essentially, what I did, instead of smacking or punching the horse every time it tried to bite me, A, I first ask, why is the horse trying to bite me? In the case of some of our client horses, um, when I was tacking them up, they had ulcers in their stomach that was making the girth painful, and they were communicating to me in a very polite way, frankly, that that hurts. Stop it. Um, So we ruled out the ulcers. We fixed the problem, and we counter-conditioned the girth to the horse to where it now has a positive association. The girth does not predict ulcer pain. Um, The girth now predicts that they get yummy goodies, Um, and I want to caveat that that only works if you actually get rid of the ulcer pain. Um, And then the horse stopped biting. You don't have to punch it in the face. Uh, You have to treat the thing that's causing it pain and then uh, re-teach it that um, the thing that was once hurting it doesn't hurt anymore. And then the horse loves being girthed up. It is an amazing concept. Um, Then another story, Mac, I also have a podcast episode on this um, where I go more in depth. But in summary, he would... um, he, he wouldn't change his expression or his ears. He would just bite you. And um, it could have been because he was a mouthy colt. Um, even though he was cut, he could have just had like a little oral fixation. Or it could have been because he had a, um, a history with people hitting him or hurting him when hands got near his face. So I went with worst case scenario because I was like, we're going to act like it is as bad as it could be and train it that way. So I taught him very carefully that my hand was a good thing. My hand fed him treats, but also when he touched it, he got treats. So I would hold my hand up and if he approached it with his face, I would click and then treat with with my other hand. And then gradually I upped the criteria until he was bumping my hand. And obviously I did this with another object first. Um, until he stopped biting that object and then I did it with my hand and then he would touch his nose to my hand and when he did that I would click and treat and then eventually I upped the criteria and it was kind of funny because he would stop chewing I think uh, I can only assume but I'm pretty sure he stopped chewing so he could hear if I was going to click and then I made that the new criteria that his mouth must be still when he's touching my hand in order to get uh reinforced via the treat and did that horse ever try to bite me again? No. So uh, you, in conclusion, you do not have to hit the animal or punch it. And in fact, in some cases where with Mac, if he was abused and had a history of hands equaling pain and therefore predicted that and therefore reacted aggressively because he was anticipating that pain and you know, by some estimation, you could say that perhaps he learned to stop signaling warnings by pinning his ears or pulling his nostrils back or making an aggressive facial expression and warning you that he was going to bite because he knew that would also get him reprimanded. So he would just bite you. So with young horses, especially like little mouthy colts, um, you know, punching back could be seen as jousting or with older horses, um, it, is you being aggressive and some of them will just get more aggressive and uh, then uh, be on guard around your hands and maybe flinch every time you move or um, try and bite you when they think that you're going to do something to them, um, even if you're just trying to take their halter off or something. So um, I really do not recommend using um, that sort of punishment reprimand 
for um, correcting biting because I think that it can really make the problem worse. And also it's ignoring the reason that the horse is doing it. You're assuming that the horse is biting you because it's, you know, trying to hurt you and be aggressive. Not that it's trying to tell you something that either it's afraid because it has a history of um, people inflicting pain on it or, you know, because uh, whatever you're doing is hurting it and it you've ignored the the signs that came before that were maybe more subtle, like the ear pinning, um, and the horse is trying to get your attention or various other reasons. So when you just label the horse blanketly as a jerk and say that he's trying to get the better of you or hurt you and that he's just a dick and that's his personality, well, you're not helping the horse and you're not helping yourself because now you've just created an enemy. And, um, why would you want to keep working with a horse that you think is such an asshole? You wouldn't keep voluntarily working with a coworker who you think is an asshole. So probably deep down, you actually really like that horse and don't truly believe that it's an asshole, but it is the only explanation that you have. And also it gives you something to do um, that doesn't make you ask a whole lot of questions. It's a lot easier to just be like, oh, he's being a dick, smack, than to like sit and be like, why is he doing that? Let me think through all the reasons why he could possibly be communicating that to me. And sometimes the answer is really hurtful. You know, like the horse just doesn't like that. Um, You know, like some horses really don't like being um, petted or scratched. Maybe they have sensitive skin or they have ulcers that makes their sin sensitive. (laughs) Sin sensitive? Cool. Um, Sin, oh my God, skin sensitive. And um, so, you know, you're like, I just want to show affection. And they're like, no, I'm going to bite you. Um, so address the issue and figure out what's going on. And maybe the simple answer is the horse doesn't like it. And that can be a hard reality to face, but that doesn't mean that you need to go back to justifying, um, hitting the horse because it gets it to do what you want it to do. Um, so that is my stance on that. Number 14, what would I do to correct a horse biting and kicking at you? Is dominance necessary? Could have pre-read that. Uh, Same thing. Kicking at you is normally out of uh, fear or frustration for the similar reasons. That usually happens around girthing or um, during feed time or if you sneak up or scare a horse. Um, Dominance is absolutely not necessary. A simple understanding of the situation and an appropriate application of... uh, you know, logical, step-by-step, fair training um, is a much better option. Dominance actually doesn't address the issue. You just force the horse into, um, I guess, obedience, but is it really obedience? (laughs) Um, Okay, number 15, what do you do when your mare fights you when you ask for a canter? So I want to say again that this is a very similar situation to saying that the horse is being pushy and you may be thinking, oh my God, here we go with the semantics again. It doesn't matter what way you phrase it, but it totally does. For the same reason that I said in those four scenarios, three give you empathy for the horse and one makes the horse your enemy. Same situation. Why is my horse fighting me um, when I ask for canter? Uh, The most obvious reason to me is she doesn't want to. If the horse wanted to canter, uh, she would and would not fight you because um, it's highly probable that when she fights you, you're going to apply your leg, your spur, hit her with a whip, um, get harsher maybe in her mouth, um, you know, 
bad things happen when she fights you, but she's still doing it. That's probably a good indication. Um, there's a good reason she's doing that. Um, in cases where the horse is, uh, not wanting to go forward, usually, um, in traditional training, um, the horse wants you to stop kicking it. So it, it will go forward. Um, and so when the horse is refusing or doesn't want to canter or is being really difficult, like ripping your arms out of the socket in the canter, um, in that specific case, if that's what you mean by fighting you, um, like they're really pulling on the bit and jerking their head around, it's probably cause you're too tight on, um, the rein and you're pulling on their face, um, or you're not following it or you're popping them in the mouth. Like some riders, uh, don't follow in the canter and they just hold their arms in place and the horse goes forward and back in the canter. And when they can't use their neck, they hit your hand every single time. Um, same thing happens in the walk. If you don't move your arms with the horse's head in the walk, you're restricting them and it hurts every time they hit it. Um, or hurts might be a strong word. It's uncomfortable. And sometimes it can escalate to hurting and often does. Um, so if that's what you mean, uh, maybe evaluate your equitation. Um, maybe the horse has, um, a distaste for that bit. Maybe if it's a single joint, maybe it's, uh, scraping the roof of her mouth and she finds that uncomfortable. Um, maybe she needs her teeth done. And every time you ask her to canter on a circle, it, um, she has an ulcer from a sharp tooth and it is, um, pressing, uh, the bits pressing into it. Um, there could be any number of reasons, but saying that the horse is fighting you, um, again, that's adversarial. When you're fighting somebody, um, you're not, you're not partners. You're not in a companionship. Um, so I implore you to discover why, you're seeing that behavior. And I also encourage everyone, instead of being saying that the horse is being pushy or that they're fighting you, describe the behavior. What is the horse doing? They're not being fighting or sorry about that one. They're not being pushy. They are, um, walking in front of you. They are walking into your space they are um, flipping their head and it's jerking on your arms. They are pinning their ears or uh, getting really tight and short in the back when you ask for the canter. Those are behaviors. Fighting and um, being pushy are um, more like personality or attitude type behaviors um, or labels that we put with behaviors, if that makes sense. Um, so what is the horse doing? Is she, is she pinning your ears and like shortening her back and like balking and refusing to canter? Zoe used to do that a lot and it is likely because her back hurt. Um, and so Zoe had kissing spine. That's why she would fight me in the canter. Um, she would get really tight and uncomfortable. Um, so again, I implore you to find the reason why the horse is doing that. Horses do not act um, what we determine to be bad for no reason. They are either in pain, confused, or afraid. Those are the three reasons that I always say. I'm sure there are more nuanced versions, but those are the big three. Um, so yes, I also encourage you to change the paradigm, uh, and perspective through which you see your horse's behavior. She is not fighting you. She's trying to tell you something. Um, and that's how I like to perceive all 
behavior that I don't like or that I find dangerous, uncomfortable, or scary. Um, the horse is not being bad or a jerk or out to get me. The horse is trying to communicate something and it feels that it has to be very loud. It's screaming at you, trying to tell you something's going on and behavior like that. Usually, um, it starts leading up to, um, not wanting to trot, not wanting to have you mount them, not wanting to be caught in the pasture because they're anticipating something that they don't like. Cause they know when you catch them in the pasture, you're going to make them canter. And if their back hurts or if their teeth hurt, they're not going to want to be caught because they're not going to want to have all that happen. Some horses, they just do it anyway, but other horses, um, they take it back that far and they'll start avoiding you. Uh, number 16, how do I tell my dad that my horse doesn't need a double bridle when he goes beautifully in a halter? Um, I would say something to the effect of, um, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a metaphor here. Um, if my dog can walk beside me without a leash on, or, you know, if we're in a new setting and, uh, just for his safety, I, um, put a leash on him, why would I, um, need to have a pinch collar or a choke collar and be holding the leash as tight as possible, as close to my body as possible. You don't, you don't need it. Um, you know, the it's, it's more aggressive. It's more equipment. It has a greater potential to do harm. Um, it doesn't mean that like a choke collar sitting on a counter or just resting around a dog's neck, it's, you know, for the most part, harmless. Uh, there are circumstances, obviously, like a cat could walk into the choke collar and it might step on it and hurt. But the choke collar itself is not causing the problem. It is how it is used. And objects and quote-unquote training um, aids like that get misused so easily. If you put any pressure on the choke collar, it pinches, or a pinch collar, whatever, um, one of the spiky ones. It, it, it hurts very fast, very easily. Double bridle is the same thing. It requires a very, very educated and nuanced hand not to be um, too much. And um, I kind of tend to argue that, like, in most cases, most people are not doing super, super upper level dressage movements. Um, And if you are, I don't know. I mean, yeah, maybe, maybe it's, um, easier on the horse and more clear, uh, easier to communicate what you want. Um, and you might have to be stronger in a softer bit, but part of me wants to say, train the horse to respond to the softer bit. Another part of me is like, "Mm, you in doing that, you might, um, do more harm than you could just in a double bridle. But I, I don't know. I'm very conflicted on that. I am not an upper level rider, um, uh, or a dressage rider. It, I don't know. I just, I'm kind of torn because I get that people want to do those upper level movements, but at the same time, I'm like, if I need a double bridle, like, do I need to do upper level movements? If I have to use a whip to get the horse to do a pee off or a passage or bow. Does the horse need to know how to do those things or can we be satisfied with other things and finding more interesting things to do that don't require that? And to some extent, like I get it, like you, you, and I know a lot of people, um, that train with positive reinforcement and are very, um, very horse savvy and are really empathetic and humane trainers that, um, do upper levels and they use double bridles. But uh, my inclination is to not 
Um, because like I said, um, the device itself is not inherently bad. It doesn't inherently cause problems, but it is a lot easier to misuse than your halter. However, um, you know, in some cases you may have to pull more on the halter than you would have to on a double bridle because the horse might be more keen to respond to the double bridle, um, and at a lighter pressure than, um, the halter at more pressure. It depends. There are lots of arguments on that and I'm not entirely sure where I sit on it, but, um, I would just say that if you don't feel that it's necessary and it has a greater potential to do harm, you think, um, and your horse just doesn't need that severity of equipment. I'm trying to think of another situation, um, where, um, it's just unnecessary. Like you just, you don't need it. I guess like having, um, snow chains on your tires on your car in the middle of summer in the south like you just don't need it it doesn't make sense it's superfluous and um arguably more uncomfortable for the horse and um you know if the horse prefers and goes better or just as well in a halter let's use the lightest thing that we need you know just because you can wear a um really cool heavy down-lined winter jacket in the, you know, 100-degree summer heat doesn't mean you should. You should probably wear the thing that you're going to be most comfortable in, uh, like a tank top, something that is cool and doesn't make you uncomfortable most of the time. I don't know if that, if any of those analogies track, but that's, that's what I got. Um, number 17, why do you think people feel the need to be dominant over a horse? So, I think um, this question is a good one because why? Why do we want to be the leader? Why do we want to be dominant? I think the short answer is because it is it appears to be the quickest way to get what we want. And, um, you know, that doesn't mean it's the right way, though. Um, just because um, the quickest way to get to the supermarket is to go 90 miles an hour does not mean that it is the best way when the speed limit is 45 miles an hour. So <laughs> just because, um, you know, it's it appears quicker uh, when in reality it's really not. Like if you go, you know, 20 miles over the speed limit, the person that was going 40 behind you you know, when you hit all the stoplights, you're probably both going to get there at the same time. Um, I mean, unless it's just a complete straight stretch. And even then, it's not really that big of a difference. It would have to be over a really long period of time to make a difference. So anyway, my point is positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement training is the same way. Positive reinforcement feels slower in the beginning, but once you get going... It makes everything so much easier. You can ask the horse questions. You can ask them to offer behaviors. And when they get it right, you reinforce, reward, put a cue on it, and then you're done. And then you have that behavior and the horse is eager to do it because they get rewarded for it. Negative reinforcement um, often, especially in the way that it's most commonly used with escalating pressure and often paired with um, punishment, is um, anxiety-inducing. And um, it... (laughs) It, it often, when the horse is anxious or misbehaving, it doesn't calm the horse down to have you be scarier than whatever they're afraid of. Whereas with positive reinforcement, if the horse is afraid, you know, 
in a lot of cases, you can give the horse something to do that has a positive association and it will help them calm down. Or you can ask them to target the scary object and they go, oh, okay, it's a game. The human would never ask me to target anything and has never asked me to target anything I was afraid of. So I can trust that this is going to be good and now it's a game. I get good things out of it. I'm not afraid. Um, whereas if you beat a horse to something that it's afraid of, like a tarp on the ground, um, you might just make the anxiety and the fear worse. Um, so, um, you know, I think that it's, it's because you can get the horse there faster without any patience. And I also think, um, especially in like Western societies, it's, um, you know, we want the quickest, easiest way to get things, even if it's not the best way by lying, stealing, cheating, stealing, um, things like that. I laughed because I, uh, messed up my words, not because I think those things are funny. Um, but you know, it's easier to steal the money than to work for it. And even though in the long run, you know, you'll get a raise for working for it. Um, whereas if you steal, you'll have to steal again. And that's kind of how I see, um, a lot of practices in traditional training. And that is not to say that negative reinforcement is inherently bad. The common application of it is the often increasing rain pressure, kicking harder, 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 digging your spurs in, whipping, growling at the horse, um, shaking the lead at it, chasing it with whips, um, you know, forcing it to do what you want. Those things are anxiety inducing, fear-based and, um, frankly controlling and often cruel. And, um, I think that, um, we do that because it's, it seems easier. And also that's what we're, we're told to do. Um, people don't, most people don't come into horse training wanting to be aggressive and, um, domineering over their horses. Like I said, in the last episode, most children, when you tell them to brush the horse, they do this feather light, barely touching the horse brush. And you're like, you know, you can press harder than that. And they're like, I don't want to hurt him. You tell them in order to go forward, you have to kick the horse, kick him. And they, they like maybe squeeze their legs a little bit. Um, and you say, no, really kick him. And they say, what? I don't want to hurt the horse. Um, so I mean, like we don't come into this like that. And I think we should, we would be a lot better off if we stuck with, um, those initial inclinations to be kind and gentle with the horses and, uh, respect them as other living beings rather than, um, like a car or an inanimate object that is, you know, subjected to do our will, uh, without any say in the matter. It's, it's not fair and it's not respectful. And what you get out of the animal is neither respect nor submission, but instead, um, you know, unconditional, (laughs) uh, unconditional, I guess, uh, obedience due to fear. And the thing is when you stop, um, holding them under your thumb with fear, then they start to come out of that shell and they often get worse before they get better. And that's why a lot of horses, when you first switch them to positive reinforcement, they get really annoying, um, because they're expressing themselves and trying out all these new behaviors that they were never allowed to do before. And that's what happened with Mac. When he came back, he was so quiet and calm And then he started biting and pawing and being aggressive and I had to work with him through it and I had to teach him how I would like him to behave and that I wasn't going to hurt him and build that trust. And, um, it's, 
And like I, I mean, and that's the thing in order to keep a horse down from doing those behaviors, you have to keep being aggressive with them. And then when you let up and they become more aggressive, it's almost like they're, they're seeing, you know, they're trying to see if you really mean it, if you're really not going to hurt them anymore. Um, and then when they believe you, that all goes away. Um, it's kind of like a purging sort of thing. Okay, so we're at 144. I'm trying to get through these before. <laughs> I think I have like two and a half hours, but I'm trying to keep it around two. Okay, so um, next question. Number 18, not letting your horse aggressively run away as soon as you get them into the pasture. My initial reaction to this question is, why does the horse want to get away from you so bad? And I swear to God, I am not trying to be offensive. I'm not trying to hurt your feelings or say that your horse absolutely abhors your presence. But something is making the horse want to get away from you very quickly. Is the horse being deprived of food for long periods of time uh, or um, being deprived of social interaction with other horses for a long period of time? Um, Does the horse experience discomfort or pain or unpleasantness uh, if you're riding it during uh, the time that you um, have it out of the pasture? Um, Or maybe it's, you know, like, I mean, we have Astro, um, our little colt, uh, he is a pain to get out to the pasture right now. And we've only been working on it for a couple of days, but he is so excited and ready to be outside and run around in the pasture after being stalled all day that he's so awful to walk, but I can't, you know, I can't get mad at him because he's been stuck inside all day and he's really excited. So we just do our best. And, um, you know, each day he gets a little bit better and I reward him for being calm. And I try not to be too aggressive with him when he gets excited. Um, because it's, I don't want him to, you know, behave because he's afraid of me. I want him to trust and feel, you know, safe and he's not, you know, endangering anyone or anything like that. Um, so it's okay, but and also for reference, he has to be inside all day because his mama has um, problems with the heat because it is ridiculously hot in Arkansas right now. And she wasn't sweating and she was getting overheated repeatedly. So um, we're working on helping her um, sweat and she is sweating again, but um, it's just really hot right now. So they are inside during the day. Um, and so, yeah, and it's been really hard on him. He does not appreciate it at all. Um, but okay, so yeah it's, it's tricky to say. I mean, I don't, I really don't want to hurt your feelings, whoever asked this. Um, but aggressively running away is also, um, an interesting way to put it like really fast or they kick out at you or they rip their head out of the halter. Um, I would recommend just, um, I mean, if you can work with them in the pasture, um, reestablish your presence and the association that they have with you and then, um, figure out what's, what's making being out of the pasture, something that they really want to get away from. Um, you know, I mean, maybe you are a jumper rider and your horse has a sore ankle and every time you get it out and you go jump it, it hurts. And then he's like, peace, dude, every time you let him go. Um, or maybe he's a barrel racer with a, um, a tricky stifle. Um, or maybe your saddle doesn't fit, or maybe, um, the whole time you're handling him and he is, um, quote unquote, acting up or acting in a way that you don't like. Maybe he's like pawing or dancing around and you're reprimanding him the whole time. When you turn him out, he's like, bye, bitch. (laughs) I don't want to be anywhere near you. Um, So, I mean, and if none of those things are happening, 
it could be that he just, um, you know, really wants to be near his buddies and he's uncomfortable being away from them. Um, and there are things that you can do to improve that as well and decrease social, um, not social anxiety, separation anxiety, <laughs> opposite problems there. Um, and you can make it really good to be um, away from them and really good to be with them. And so both situations are okay and comfortable for the horse. Number 19, my horse gets pushy with only some treats. Why not all? There's that pushy word again. Um, so only with some treats, why not all? Some treats have different levels of salience. Like for you, for instance, salad is probably like a three on the scale of I love this so much. Um, whereas maybe chocolate cake or, um, a juicy steak or your favorite brand of vegan chicken nuggets, whatever your diet is, um, those are probably at like a 10. Your favorite food is at a 10, whereas a salad is like a two or a three for most people, I think. Um, unless your favorite food is a salad, in which case the scale ends at three. But, um, so for some horses, I believe this specific question had apples somewhere in there. Um, the apples might be a 10 for that horse. They love the way apples taste, but grass is like, okay, I have this every day. It's kind of boring, basic. Um, so, you know, they really want to get the apples, but, um, I try in my training to reserve um, the really, really salient things for really excellent above and beyond or new behaviors. So if I'm working on something new or the horse offers something really cool, then um, I give them their favorite treat, which for Zoe is carrots. I don't feed them carrots all the time because carrots and apples and things of that nature are very high in sugar. Also, Zoe does not like apples. Um, so for most of the time I train with hay or alfalfa pellets, um, I can give her a lot of them. She does not choke on them. I have not yet seen them cause choke in horses the way that alfalfa cubes, um, have a history of doing, uh, for a lot of horses or a, um, reputation. And, uh, so yeah, I can give her lots of them. They're not too high in sugar. Um, and if they are, um, you know, if your horse is really sensitive diet wise, you can sort of ration out, um, maybe their dinner or their supper, um, and things of that nature, but you can still teach a horse how you would like them to behave over the treats. Um, I have a video online, uh, on YouTube and a blog post on my website, jeticwithery.com called how to start clicker training. They're, I think, pretty sure they're both named the same thing. How to start clicker training, the YouTube video. I go through each and every step on how to teach your horse to have manners, quote unquote manners, um, around treats in that they are not sniffing you or biting you or all over you when you have food in your hand. Um, because in most cases they do that because, um, a, it is in their ethology. They are foragers. They search for food. Um, so when you have it, they're going to search you for it. And also, them getting reinforced for it. So if you remember, and you're not familiar with reinforcement and how it works, um, when I was talking about the leader up example, the the horse learns that when he takes a step forward, you let the pressure off. Same works for positive reinforcement. If the horse is all over you and you give him a treat, then the horse is going to continue to be all over you because that's how he gets the food. And he has a history of searching the ground for food and getting it. So why would he do anything different? Well, if you no longer give him food in the areas that you feel uncomfortable or unsafe in and you give it to him out of your space and you ask him 
uh, with a cue to move out of your space and then give them the treat, um, then they no longer mug you. There is no uh, punishment needed. Um, You do not have to reprimand the horse or shoo them out of your space. You can train them. And I have videos on how to do that, and you can look at all of that. Um, There's a specific way to do it, so I recommend uh, watching those videos um, and checking out my blog. I also have a resources page on my website um, that I made for people like me who, when I just started out, I couldn't find any information on anything. So I made pretty much a beginner website for it. Um, JetEquitheory.com, once again. Um, Number 20, how do you properly establish some dominance? Simple answer, you don't. Dominance is not a thing. If you mean a horse that respects you, Um, you train it, (laughs) you have to, um, teach the horse how to behave how you would like them to. Horses do not come out of the womb knowing the proper distance that you would like them to be from your body. They do not come out knowing how to lead. They do not come out knowing that they can't bite you. They do not come out knowing how to be ridden and how to leg yield. Um, and they, like all of the things that we want horses to do, you have to teach them. Um, working with the baby horses has taught me this tenfold. Like, I, I mean, I already had an idea, but I also have only ever worked with horses that have already known the basics. Um, so now I'm being extra challenged by working with horses that know absolutely zero things about, uh, you know, people life. So, um, when, I am working with them, I have to spell everything out. And if your horse has a particular area where you feel like you are just not jiving well, that is the area that you need to train. And you need to assume that the horse has no idea what you are asking. If it is leading and the horse is quote unquote barging or being pushy, um, you need to assume that the horse has never learned how to lead and teach it. Start from square one, break the behavior down, find out your goal behavior and maybe work backwards or start out at the littlest piece of, um, leading, which might be haltering, might not even be having the leader up on. Um, and then filling the hole in your training and teaching the horse how you would like him to behave. It is not the right way, nor is it the proper way, nor is it the obedient, respectful, submissive, or non-rude way. It is just the way that you, the human want the horse to lead. It, there is no objective truth or right in this. It is just the way that you want the horse to lead and they do not come out knowing that. So you must train it. It is unfair to expect the horse to just behave. Um, Oh, he knows better. Well, clearly he doesn't either that or he's not motivated or physically cannot or does not understand what you're asking. So saying that, Oh, well, he knows, well, something is making, uh, you know, his knowledge of what he's supposed to do, um, less reinforcing or less motivating than, um, the thing that he's trying to do. Like Zoe, she leads very well now, except for when there's a vet out. She will run me over, hates the vet, is so scared of him. And we have been working on it, but she, it just has a history of being poked by needles and she hates it. So, I mean, like, you know, and I'm not going to get on to her and tell her that she's awful or call her a jerk because she's terrified. She hates it. Um, so, um, establishing dominance is you came to the wrong place to ask that question, but hopefully in listening to these podcasts, you have realized that you don't have to, but instead you can establish a partnership wherein you respect and treat your horse, um, like a sentient being that, um, has feelings and is not a robot. Um, number 21, is it ever useful to raise your voice to make your horse respect what you're asking? 
So if I'm not mistaken, I've been talking for a long time. I um, talked about how horses um, or like with dogs or people, you can feel reprimanded or punished by being yelled at. So for some uh, horses, especially sensitive ones, or maybe if, um, you know, being um, hit with a whip or spurred has been paired with or preceded by yelling, the horse might anticipate the pain um, and therefore think that the, um, have a negative association with the the vocal command that is very loud. Um, And so, yes, you can get a horse to um, react similarly to if you hit it with a whip, um, if it's been conditioned that way, um, when you yell at it, um, that's, you say, quote unquote, respect what you're asking. You're not asking then if you're raising your voice and yelling at your horse, you're punishing it. You're not asking anything. Um, and the horse is not respecting it. He's fearing it. So that's an important distinction. If you're yelling at your dog and you say, Hey, no, you're punishing your dog. That is not an ask. Um, and I'm not sure under what circumstance you would be like, Hey, can you canter? Um, you're not asking anything, um, unless you're using it to bolster. Like if you put your leg on and, um, you wanted the horse or, or, okay, maybe a better example is, um, if you ask the horse to woe and then the horse doesn't, so you smack it in the face with a whip or you, um, wait, I guess that's actual punishment. So, uh, if you ask the horse to woe, um, by gently pulling on the leader saying, whoa, and he doesn't, and then you say, whoa, and you yell it. And the horse knows that if he doesn't stop, he might get smacked in the face with a whip, or you're going to get aggressive or run in front of him or do something to force him to stop. It's a threat. And it can also be punishing in and of itself. Like imagine your parents yelling at you and being like, when they say your full name, Oh my God, Uh, um, that's punishing because you are immediately stricken with fear and you're terrified of what's about to happen. And sometimes they don't even have to take the next step. That was enough, Um, you know, and um, it just instills fear in you. So no, it does not make your horse respect what you're asking. It makes your horse afraid to take a wrong step or to quote unquote disobey um, or just not do what you're um, wanting it to do. Um, also I like how we often say, uh, what you're asking. It's rarely ever an ask. Um, it's in traditional training, hardly ever is it an ask because if you escalate the pressure, like if you quote unquote, ask your horse to, um, trot, um, and you say trot and the horse does not trot, what do you do? You put your leg on. And if the horse still does not trot, you kick. That is not a question. You are first asking the horse, uh, would you like to do this or else? That's not really a question. The horse has to choose between, um, ignoring you, um, and, uh, getting punished or getting, uh, an aversive applied, um, which is the definition of positive punishment. That's where negative reinforcement, positive punishment kind of blur. Um, but we're not talking about that today. I talked about that in previous episodes. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's just a euphemism. It's the same thing as saying join up is for respect and you being a, uh, a leader for your horse. It's, it's a euphemism for being aggressive. Um, and asking is the same thing. You're commanding. Rarely ever is it an ask or an, a true cue. It's usually, um, it's not a, it's not a question because the horse can't say no. And if the horse can't say no, is it really a choice? Which is what asking implies. 
Anyway, number 22, how do you best explain to someone that it's been disproven and how would you tell older people that times have changed and you don't have to train with dominance and respect? Sometimes you just have to let people do what people want to do. You can send them links. You could send them my podcast. Um, you could send them the YouTube videos. You could send them the articles where people talk about it, which are all linked in my previous podcast if you need some. But uh, in most cases, people feel attacked and they're um, going to get pissed off and defensive and um, sometimes you just have to say, well, I disagree and science does not support it and I'm not going to train my horse that way. And sometimes you just have to put your foot down, which can be very scary and off-putting, especially if you're not confrontational. I feel you. Um, but um, the science straight up does not support it. There has been so many studies done to try and prove that um, hierarchies exist within horse herds and that they are aggressive and all of those sorts of things and they have all been disproven. Um, it's it's not a thing. The, I think the, one of the best videos to send is that one um, called... Um, I don't know why oh, I said it in the last video. It's the YouTube video that has a picture of Caesar Milan scaring a cat. It's like um, debunking dominance theory or um, dominance. Uh, I forgot what it's called, but it's on there and it's linked in the previous episode. Sorry, I'm kind of rushing. I'm trying to get through these before I run out of time. Okay, so anecdotes. Um, number 23. There are only two of these. Remember, we've only got 24. So, number 23, I only met one mare who fit the alpha slash lead mare idea. Older 20s, fantastic shape quarter horse mare who had been bred once in her life. Her behavior was moving the other horses, constantly pinning her ears back and baring her teeth at them. To people, she was entirely different, well-mannered, gentle, could stand ground tied for one plus hours, understood verbal left and right cues. I learned how to pick her hooves and she was the first horse I learned to ride on. She took such good care of me, but was labeled bitchy and as a lead mare because she how, how she interacted with other horses. It's the same thing we talked about earlier. It could have been any number of reasons. I don't have enough information to tell you exactly um, why she was acting that way, nor do I know that I ever could for sure. But um, usually it is because the horses feel threatened for one reason or another. Um, you know, again, they could be hurt and there's a particularly bothersome horse. Um, maybe they just don't like one of the other horses. That happens. Horses sometimes just don't get along with other ones. And they try to keep their distance. Um, she could feel like she um, really needed um, <clears throat> a specific resource. Um, or maybe from having a foal, she just felt super protective of herself and um, her space. And also the potential for the reason or the explanation of why there was such a difference uh, between the horse interaction and the human interaction um, is because of a concept called learned helplessness, which I'm hoping to get to in this episode, um, and where the horse knows that she cannot go against what the humans say, so she looks like she's being very compliant and happy and whatever, but um, or just not being disobedient, frankly. Um, and, but it's because there's a threat there that if you act up, you will be punished. Um, so she just doesn't act up and, um, she could be grouchy because she's in pain or, um, hormonal. Um, some horses, when they come into season, they get ovarian cysts and that can be really painful and, um, make you grouchy. Same with ulcers makes horses very grouchy. Um, so I don't know, short answer, but those are some possible explanations. Um, Number 24, there's um, an OT to be my trainer. 
Oh, <laughs> I see. I, I read this. And I use Siri to type it. There's an OTTB my trainer is working with who will rear and strike out while leading and has struck workers before. She has an injured knee, so she wants for safety. Um, or Okay, so the trainer has an injured knee, so she wants for safety to be sure that he respects her so she is strong with him. There's that euphemism again. Um, respects. She means fears. Um, because, like, we don't ever use the word respect in the horse world to, um, like, I don't know, signify that the horse is calm, understands, and is confident in what the trainer expects and wants and will reinforce him for. That is not ever what we use the word respects for. We use it as a, the horse is doing it because he knows better. Um, and the knows better implies that he knows better than to do that, or I will hurt him or do something unpleasant, um, as punishment. Um, so, I mean, that's, I, in this circumstance, this is an emergency situation. The trainer has an injured knee. Um, I would recommend having somebody who is not injured help the horse. Um, because if you are unable to act as you normally would, you will be more likely to be defensive. Um, so, I mean, maybe she's not the best person to be leading the horse, but, um, you know, if she must lead the horse, um, you know, she's going to have to do what she has to do to keep herself safe. But I would recommend outside of that specific scenario um, of leading, because I'm assuming he's being led to and fro somewhere, um, outside of having a destination, somebody needs to teach him how to lead properly in a kind manner that respects his learning process, not just reprimanding him for putting a toe out of line. Okay, I'm going to finish reading it. Um, she wants to make sure that he respects her so she is strong with him to protect herself. Is there any situation in for or where safety might be necessary um, to be dominant around a horse if it's a dangerous situation, uh, as long as you're not abusive? I mean, it depends. Also, define abusive. My definition of abusive is hitting. Um, in a spousal relationship between people, we characterize hitting as abuse, yet do it all the time in horses. And if anybody says, hey, hitting your horse, you're being abusive, um, you're automatically labeled a pussy for uh, being like, hey, maybe you shouldn't hit your horse, yet it is against the law to do it to another adult, uh, especially if you are... Um, you know, you get the cops caught on you for that. Uh, so it, it's just disrespectful to the animal as a sentient being, but fine. Um, and they were made sentient beings in Europe. So go Europe. <laughs> Thanks, Western society or America, at least for still recognizing them as livestock. Good to know. Um, but anyway, yes, keep yourself safe. But the, the goal and the whole purpose of training is to prevent those situations and to make the horse successful so that you don't have to be hard on them. The only way to achieve respect in that situation is to scare the horse. I mean, that definition, that particular definition of respect, because it's not the one that I explained before. This definition of respect is to make the horse so afraid that he doesn't cross a toe out of line which obviously I mean like you don't want him to be towing over the line because this horse is rearing and striking out but why why is the horse rearing and striking out that is the 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 issue not that the horse lacks respect and that the horse needs to be punished there's a reason this horse is doing this it is likely fear or if he's super young 
um, then, you know, like Astro, Astro does that all the time, um, particularly when we're leading him back out to the field. Um, but it's never like an effort to hurt. It's normally play, but he's very large. Um, so I, I understand, but at the same time, teach him outside of a scenario. Like we said earlier, set the horse up for success. If it's lightning and thundering and everybody's running around, it's not the time to train it. If the horse is over threshold and is acting up, take it down a notch. If it's acting up being led from the stall to the paddock, try it in a circumstance where it's calmer and it will be more successful, like in the stall or out in the field. You know, make it successful instead of trying to fix the problem while it's happening. I mean, get through the situation, but then recognize it's a hole in the training and then fix that. So that's what I have to say. Also, again, define abusive. You say, you know, is it for safety, it might be necessary in a dangerous situation, question mark, as long as you're not abusive. You will likely be abusive by my definition, which is um, causing physical or emotional or psychological harm to the animal. That is my definition of abuse. Um, okay. So I just quickly, cause I'm running out of time, want to talk about the side effects of force and fear. Um, I also ripped this from the, uh, Meadow Family Rescue page. Um, and they say, cause I think it's really, it's really important to consider it may work and the outward behavior may change, but it comes at a price. If it were a medicine, the side effect warnings would be, uh, potentially depression, aggression, anxiety, fear, phobia, or PTSD. Uh, another concept called learned helplessness, um, following uncontrollable aversives, which they cannot escape from. They learn that they are helpless, give up and submit horses suffering from learned helplessness are often called shut down. So your dead broke school ponies often learn that if they try and, um, express discomfort or unwillingness that they will just be, um, uh, put back into line to put it nicely. Um, so this is a situation I was talking about before with Mac. He came home very quiet and docile when he realized nobody is hurting him and quote unquote keeping him in line anymore. He got really bad. And then when I started working with him and gaining his trust and teaching him how I'd like him to behave um, in a way that he understood and liked to be taught um, that didn't cause him pain or fear, um, all that went away. So, um, then here's another topic that I found that was really interesting and hadn't considered was, um, different from learned helplessness is called conditioned suppression. So the horses learn to suppress their behavior as punishment as an is inevitable. So they're expecting punishment, um, from the behavior like Mac, his ear pinning or nose pulling back, um, to warn people that he was going to bite them, um, might've gotten punished. So he suppresses that behavior but it was motivating enough to go ahead and bite. So he's suppressing one and acting out another or just suppressing altogether because he knows he'll get punished. And then you have a horse that's not communicating to you anymore. If your horse has ulcers, but he's been punished for biting and it worked in that the horse is no longer biting, he has no way to communicate to you that he has ulcers and that his stomach hurts. Um, so she goes on to say, however, even though the horse doesn't react outside, this doesn't mean they aren't feeling the fear inside. Um, another one, frozen watchfulness, hypervigilant and super responsive when in the trainer's presence and an attempt to avoid aversives. Um, so those are the horses that are like oddly quiet and, um, just really not wanting to, um, face, um, reprimand. So another one is hyperactivity and abnormal startle response. So they're just like really 
easy to frighten you know that particularly happens on cool windy days when they're like really feeling good they're really like all over the place um so decreased ability to learn as their short-term memory slots are taken up by negative emotion so this is what i was talking about earlier if you have a gun to your head and you're trying to learn arithmetic or algebra um, you're gonna have a very hard time because you are afraid you are scared you are worried you are sad Um, all of those emotions are taking up your short-term memory and therefore preventing learning suppressed immune system due to long-term stress this is actually scientifically proven in both animals and humans um that if you increase levels of cortisol and other stress hormones um, do have a significant impact on your health. And um, we should be trying to negate those at all costs because those things lead to um, stress in the horses. I mean, the stress in the horses leads to ulcers and um, tension, which can lead to body pain, like for Zoe, um, outside of confirmation problems. Um, Tension in her back led to... um, hyperflexion of it and making it um, hollow and tense and therefore kissing spine so um that's that's one and then suppressed immune system also um, makes you less resistant to illness and diseases another is physical injury from the practical training um so you know spur marks scars um bit sores um you know, even the kissing spine example I just gave could fall under that category. Um, you know, uh, marks from the whip or just the pain from the whip is physical injury. Um, okay. Another is horses may develop a concept that humans equal bad, um, which is where when you turn your horse out, if they sprint away from you, um, it, it, or like most of the time, <laughs> like, you know, if not all of the time, they always walk away or run away from you probably a good sign your horse does not enjoy being around you or um the things that you're doing for instance zoe all of our baby horses all of them come up to me and when i turn them out they all do not leave they stand there blinking at me like why are you leaving hello um so and that is how i train all of our horses because i don't want them to hate me um and that doesn't um that's too harsh i'm getting tired um it doesn't mean if your horse runs away from you that they hate you. It just means that they're doing something unpleasant. Like, um, I don't know, say you work in a cubicle in an office. It's not your favorite thing in the world. And so when the, you know, clock strikes five o'clock, you're ready to get out of there. Um, that can be how training is for some horses. Sometimes it has to be done, um, you know, for their health, like in kissing spine rehab, it's a lot of strength training and, um, groundwork lunging and conditioning and stuff like that. And, um, you know, sometimes you have to do it for the horse's health, but, um, that doesn't mean that you have to make it something that they, um, don't like doing. And I plan on making an episode, um, more about Zoe's kissing spine in the future, but, um, I just haven't had time to do it yet. And it's also been really hot. So I haven't, um, don't shoot me. Okay. So the last topic or side effect here on, um, force and fear is think of what it feels like to be a horse undergoing dominance reduction training. So you're trying to reduce the dominance quote unquote in the horse. Um, so would you feel confused, terrified, trapped? The explanations that I have given in all of the, um, hypothetical scenarios, um, those don't sound like good situations where you're being chased, uh, by a human who's growling at you and swinging a whip and a scary object at you. Um, or someone who is saying you better do what I say or else, um, those aren't really circumstances that breed, um, affection and desire to, 
stay and hang around and uh, interact. Those are situations that breed um, avoidance and a desire to leave and make it stop. And those are just some things that I really consider you guys to think about. And again, I don't want to say that all traditional training is not bad. Negative reinforcement is not bad. It is the frequent misuse of both of those things that cause the problem. And um, when you use super escalating negative reinforcement in training scenarios, not in emergency scenarios, it is it is potentially damaging to your relationship with your horse. I encourage you to listen to the previous episode if you have not already, um, where I read the position statement from the International so- uh, Society of Equitation Science. Um, it, it has been found to have a damaging effect on your relationship with your horse. Your horse does not want to be with you if you are causing it pain and you are training it that the only way that um, it gets peace is by doing what you want um, so that you will stop badgering, hurting, or frightening it. Um, and, you know, that is just not a world that I want to subject my horse to anymore. I did for a very long time. And that doesn't mean that I hate barrel racing or um, regular horse racing or jumpers or eventing or anything like that. It's just 90% of the training, um, you know, tends to be like that. It doesn't mean like the entire training program, but most of the trainers that train in those disciplines are they're aggressive and they're hard on the horses and they're hard on the riders. And, um, you know, there are so many tweets out there where people are like, Oh my God, I, my trainer almost made me cry again today. Or my trainer made me cry four times during my lesson. That's not funny. I mean, I get it's a coping mechanism, but that's not funny. That's not a happy environment to work in. And it also makes you, um, start to resent riding and it can potentially make you harder on your horse. And, uh, I see it happen way too much. And again, it is not to say that traditional training or trainers or um, show disciplines or anything of that nature are abusive or bad or should be stopped at all costs. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that when you are using fear or pain to control an animal, I really, really encourage you to rethink that. Obviously, once again, I will say it one last time, if it is an emergency situation where either you or the horse is going to get hurt, do what you have to do. But in training scenarios, when you are prepping to prevent things like that or teach the horse something new, fear and pain have no place being used and abused to make an animal do what you want. That is coercion, it is abuse, and it is not cool. It's not cool. And I am overhearing people brag about hitting horses. I have heard, like, we had somebody come out to dry a horse and their um, relative was there and we pulled them aside and um, the rider was like, no, we don't agree with her. We just let her talk. Um, But this relative was bragging about hitting horses and being abusive and being dominant and being the alpha and said that if this rider um, just made sure that she was the alpha over the horse that she was looking at, then they would have no problem. And I was about to scream at this lady and I kept my mouth shut because I don't want to offend anybody. And I also knew that the little girl, um, that was looking at our horse did not feel the same way. Um, but oh my God, I was like, dude, you have not opened a book. 
It is not supported by science. You are believing stuff that is not true and justifies animal abuse. And um, just bragging and making jokes and laughing about how she had to put horses in their places. And does do you think it makes you look like a badass who's telling a war story? Like, I genuinely don't get it. It's gross and it's disgusting. You would not brag about hitting a dog or um, twitching a dog or pinching it or causing pain to a dog or a cat or a guinea pig or a human. If you brag about hitting another human oh my god, you're going to jail. Like, it, it's gross. And why is it okay, condoned, laughed at, and elevated in the equestrian world? It is beyond frustrating to me. And I'm smacking the table so many times because it irritates me that we are, that we think it's funny in the equestrian world when people are like, oh yeah, I had this mare and oh, she was just coming on top of me and being so rude. And I, I just gave her a really good one in the face and she did not do that again. And I like, I want to smack you in the face and see if you will tell that story again. And maybe, maybe we'll buy your logic, you'll learn. And then you'll love and respect me for hitting you and teaching you how to behave and being your leader. That is just, I am not trying to be condescending. I'm trying to be condescending. Fuck it, whatever. I'm being condescending. That is annoying. And also gross behavior. Do not brag about abusing animals, bringing harm to them, and um, being dominant. Your ego does not matter. The um, well-being and the um, welfare of the animal are what matter. If you are going to work with animals, you need to put them first. You need to care about them. You need to be compassionate and willing to train. Training does not mean punishing every little behavior that doesn't fit with your perfect ideal of what you want your Instagram horse to look like. Training means doing the hard work, reflecting on your behavior, trying to understand and empathize with your horse, and creating a genuine partnership, not a dictatorship. And I am so passionate about it because I did it for so long and I cannot believe that nobody ever woke me up out of that. People kept perpetuating it, telling me my horse was hot and that she was bad and that I needed to stop riding her. She would be better with a, um, you know, a more experienced trainer or that um, if I just got on to her and showed her who was boss, she would behave. And it broke my heart every single time. And I did not want to do it, but I told myself it was for her own good and it was the only way I was going to be able to show. And at some point, I realized that that is not all that matters to me. Being able to show is is not the end. And that's why I gave it up. Because for Zoe, who is an individual, this does not go for every horse, for Zoe, showing was way too over the top. It brought her too much anxiety. She got way too stressed. She did not like being stalled. She would weave and she would bob and she would hit her head on the wall, like bump it on the wall, like she was in a straight jacket. And she um, would dance around. She was impossible to get out of her stall and lead because she would walk all over the top of me. And there was no calming her down. She was already over threshold just by being there. And um, it's it's just way too much for her. And there's no point. So what, I can go win a 99 cent ribbon? And I mean, yeah, I enjoyed cross country, but dressage and um, show jumping and the warm up for cross country and walking back from cross country all sucked. And I felt awful because my horse was so stressed out the whole time. And everyone thought I couldn't handle her because she's acting like a lunatic, but she's just scared and over threshold and like it's way too much for her. And like it just made us both look stupid. 
And I'm not interested in that anymore. I want to have a relationship with my horse where we have a mutual understanding that I'm not going to hurt her. I'm never going to ask her to do anything that she cannot handle and that um, the things that we do are going to be fun for both of us and um, she can get good things out of it and so can I. Um, You know, putting both of us in priority, not just me anymore. And for a minute when I switched to positive reinforcement, she was the only priority. You know, I was like, oh, well, I don't want to lead her out of the pasture at all Um, because what if she doesn't want to (laughs) leave? But now I'm like, okay, well, let's make being out of the pasture a good thing. And um, so it's, it's difficult to find your way out of it. And accepting that maybe you haven't been right the whole time is a really difficult thing to do as well. But I think it is our, our paramount responsibility as equestrians and horse owners and horse lovers to advocate for their welfare, revolutionize the way that we train them and accept science instead of just disregarding it because it doesn't agree with what our, you know, 60 year old trainer has been telling us who wasn't around when the research, you know, that wasn't what she was brought up doing. So how would she know? Because I know she's not looking. Most horse trainers do not stay up to date on research. So it is our responsibility. And even if they did, it is your responsibility to make sure that they're saying something that's true. It is like you can't just rely on other people to do all the work for you. It is your horse. It is your responsibility. If you are the one that is riding and loving it and wanting to be there for it, you know, every time you interact with your horse, you're training it. It is your responsibility to know what you're doing. And I encourage you to look for multiple sources and corroborate and not just take someone's word for it or one article's word for it. You know, it it is so much bigger than that. And I really value that uh, responsibility. You can't just, I, I personally don't think that you can just go through your life as an equestrian, just going about willy nilly, doing whatever, you know, people tell you is right and thinking that hitting your horse is going to make it respect you and want to hang around you that has not made sense to any other relationship but for some reason to equestrians that makes sense obviously it's never put in those words um you know a little discipline will make him you know learn and uh respect you and then you become the dominant that's how they put it which is really empowering for you really disempowering and um just frankly awful for the horse. Um, but with that said, I hope that, um, I gave enough disclaimers that nobody is like overly offended, but just know that I'm very passionate about this. I've done the research and I encourage you to fact check me. And if you disagree, let's talk about it. Um, but you better have sources, (laughs) um, that, um, are supported by science and research and evidence and spend time looking at it. Prove me wrong. You know, I mean, I, I want to improve the horse world. I want to make the lives of horses better in our industry. And I hope that you guys are with me on that. I know this podcast is pretty progressive. So I appreciate those of you who have listened. I'm going to wrap it up. Be sure to check us out on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube at Jet Equithery, as well as uh, Facebook and Instagram, uh, Jet Real Podcast, to keep up with this podcast. I post new episodes every single Tuesday. I have a Patreon. Oops, sorry, move the stool again. I have a Patreon where you can support me and the horses if you would like. It goes straight into my savings account. Um, It's patreon.com slash Podcast, or just look it up on the app or site. And with that said, thank you guys so much for listening and being open-minded and willing to ask those tough questions and learn. 
So I hope that I have helped and maybe you learned something, maybe you didn't, maybe you already knew, or maybe you think I'm an idiot. (laughs) I don't know, but I hope this podcast gave you some perspective or at least uh, planted a seed. That is my hope. So with that said, thank you guys so much for listening and I will catch you on Tuesday.